Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to a big Wednesday. Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. I am Doug Maurice. I am joined, as always, by Nathan Baird and Stephen Means. And we have been previewing the Ohio State 2020 season. And we're going to do that again here on Wednesday for a big two-hour podcast. But we're not doing an opponent that's on the schedule. We're doing one that I think is a, sort of a threshold for what Ohio State might want to be in 2020. And that is the LSU Tigers. We are diving in on the 2019 LSU offense and whether the 2020 Ohio State offense can be anything like that. We have previewed specifically Bowling Green, Oregon, Buffalo, and Rutgers. We will get to Iowa next week, but this is the bye week on the planned schedule for 2020. And by the way, by the time the the schedule might change by the time we're not even done going through the schedule because we thought we'd do this for 12 weeks. We're not going to go at least 13 with the bye weekend here. And Gene Smith has talked about the idea that if the schedule changes for 2020 and they make some adjustments, maybe go conference only, they might have to figure that out by July. Um, So we'll see how that goes. But for now we're planning this um, and we're going to dig in just again on the LSU offense and, and where there are comparisons and aren't comparisons. We're going to talk play calling, Then we're going to talk running back, receiver, offensive line, and quarterback. Nathan, just to preview this, I I don't want to tell people what we think. Did you enjoy watching LSU to get ready for this, or was it tedious? Oh, I think it was enjoyable to get back to watching football again for some reason, Um, which I guess any of us could do um, in our spare time anytime we want, thanks to YouTube, thanks to our DVRs that are probably still have stuff on it from last season. But to have kind of a, a task to go back and, and, and analyze football again. We've, we've strayed from that a little bit just because we haven't had it immediately in front of our eyes. And um, there's other things to write about kind of in relation to college, <clears throat> excuse me, college football right now and Ohio state football. So it, it was kind of fun to go back and, and remember like, Oh yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the game. This is how it happens. And, 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 and kind of get our brain working back in that realm again. Steven, what did you think of going through these games? I found it enjoyable just because, you know, it's been a while, you know, since, you know, like Nathan just said, since any of us have actually watched a college football game probably. So I enjoyed it. It wasn't really tedious because, you know, you were looking for certain things to, you know, compare it to some things you might be watching this upcoming season if there is a season. Yeah, I liked it. LSU's good. It's funny. I realized I did not watch LSU that much last year. Um, I've claimed, I've not claimed because it's true. I've said on this podcast, listen, man, I I watch what I'm paid to watch. And that's Ohio State. I do not sit down and just watch a ton of national college football during the year. 
So it was kind of fun to catch up and look back. Um, <clears throat> I watched LSU Alabama, and I watched LSU Oklahoma in the playoff semifinal, and then I rewatched Ohio State Penn State to get my fresh comparison in my head of, of, again, of like what the Ohio State offense looks like because I hadn't watched a lot of Ohio State lately. So that's where I'm coming from. I actually did not watch either of the Clemson games, and I wanted to, but then one of the things that I, that why I didn't prioritize that at much is because I wanted to watch Justin Fields fully healthy, um, and Penn State was the last time he was that because I wanted to have that fresh picture in my head. So I only watched two LSU games, Alabama and Oklahoma. Um, and I will say I was thrown off because initially when I was watching LSU, Oklahoma, I thought I was watching LSU against a high school defense. And I was confused and I thought, why? How come Ohio State had to play Clemson in a playoff semifinal? And why did LSU get to play like Olin Tangi West or whoever this is, because this is the worst defense that I have ever seen in my life. And then I realized, no, no, this, is, this no. is Alex Grinch's Oklahoma defense. And then I thought, well, I feel bad that Alex Grinch got fired as Oklahoma's defensive coordinator after this game. And then I remembered, no, no, he didn't get fired. Everybody thinks he's great. So blew my mind that Oklahoma had no idea how to play defense. I get their players weren't as good. Embarrassing. So in conclusion, I enjoyed getting my juices flowing about how bad Alex Grinch's defenses are. So I only watched two LSU games. Nathan, what did you watch? I watched the Oklahoma game, or at least the first half of it. I was watching games up to the point where I thought um, things were separating and, and I could get more by watching the start of another game. So I watched – uh, the first half of, of Oklahoma, I watched the first half of the SEC championship game against Georgia, and I watched, um, I believe it was the Texas game. I was trying to find good opponents, obviously. I didn't feel like I would gain a lot from necessarily watching LSU against some random game that they won 70-6. to six. I wanted to get somebody that was like playoff level or just below that. Um, I also didn't rewatch the Clemson game. And it is interesting that, like you said before, that like – you realize you didn't watch LSU that much. Part of that is because we, we have to spend so much time watching Ohio State, and our Saturdays are so full of Ohio State. And then, for me, uh, a lot of my Sunday is still re full again of watching Ohio State. There just isn't a lot of time. And even when you do watch these other games, you're not sitting there watching a play, stopping it, going back. It, it, it is a little bit different when you're sitting down and trying to analyze, quote-unquote analyze, what's happening on a, on a field as opposed to just sort of watching it unfold in front of you. Yeah, watching with the purpose. We don't uh I like it. I think it's fun. I know, I mean, I'm not a scout. I'm not a scout. I'm not a I'm not a film breakdown guy, but it's fun to do. Um Steven, what did you watch? I watched the Texas game, I watched the Alabama game, I watched the Oklahoma game, which is why I ended up watching the Clemson game, because the Oklahoma game was just not interesting after the first thirty minutes anymore because, you know, Oklahoma's defense has just got awful. Okay, so that is our baseline, um, and let's dig in on this. Let's dig in starting with LSU's plan of attack, their play calling. Joe Brady got a lot of hype, justifiably. As LSU's offensive coordinator, he now has already left and is the offensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers. Um, Gary Danielson, it was funny. I, I got a little sense of this 
I was watching the LSU Alabama game and Gary Danielson, the color commentator for the SEC on CBS, there were some basic things that LSU was doing that like Ohio State does all the time, just with some of their five wide receiver sets. A uh, lots of times, I mean, they did what they did a lot what Ohio State does constantly, which is go five wide, but it's with your base personnel. It's with three receivers, a tight end, and a running back. And so they'd have the running back split out wide, and Gary Danielson was like, look at them. They're splitting out the running back wide to figure out what Alabama is doing defensively, and he's circling Clyde Edwards-Alaire out there in, in, at the receiver spot. They're figuring out if Alabama is in zone or man for Joe Burrow to be able to take apart this. I was like, dude, it's just – like, did you not see this in the SEC before? I was a little bit like – a passing offense came to the SEC, and Gary Daniel acted like, Danielson acted like they had landed on the moon. So that was like a little glimpse for me of it. Uh, you know, they talked a lot about during that LSU Alabama game about how remember when they played in the national title game? However many years ago, it was twelve to nine, and like look at us now. There are actual two functional offenses on the field. So it made me laugh a little bit that the the mighty SEC and they are mighty is like behind the times when it comes to offensive football. Um, but they, Joe Brady got a lot of credit. You could see how he and Joe Burrow meshed. They were on the same page. He put Joe Burrow in good situations to win. What did you think, Nathan, we'll start with you here, of LSU's play calling, their plan of attack? And again, we're not just talking about LSU. We're talking about LSU in the context of Ohio State. And so we just want to keep reminding ourselves on that because just talk about LSU from a year ago is not that interesting to our Buckeye Talk listeners. But the idea is it doesn't have to be a direct comparison. And I think there can be direct comparisons. LSU did this specific thing. Will Ohio State do that? Will they want to? Are they capable? Will they do something different? So there's some of that, but I think it's the general vibe like, LSU's play calling was good. Can Ohio State's in its own way be as good? I think it's going to be constantly in Ohio State's own way. Can they be at the level that LSU was at in their way? Nathan, LSU play calling with Joe Brady. I, mean, I think it is something that I think LSU could be at that level. Um, I, I was struck by how many weapons LSU had in its arsenal and how kind of freely it would use all of them, at least, again, just in the, the, the couple of games that I rewatched. Um, you know, starting with the Oklahoma game, I think the first play of the game was um, an RPO or some kind of fake, you know, a fake handoff, they hit a pass, and then, like, three plays later, same thing. Um, another, you know, fake to Edwards Hilaire, and they hit a guy with the top. There was, as much as we talked about the balance of Ohio State's offense, and, yeah, they would do some of that, too, I mean, as far as just doing some play-action things. But the, the cohesion between the, the, the run game and the passing game, I thought, was something that I, I didn't necessarily um, assume that LSU had until you sit down and kind of watch it a little bit more specifically. And I think that's something Ohio State's going to have to have in, in 2020. I think, you know, the way that the arsenal that they have as far as a passing attack, I think they're going to have to kind of use that to get the, the run going. And I think that's how they're going to be able to, to get opponents to um, respect the run game a little bit. Um, that's what I'm kind of curious to see from Ohio State in 2020 is when you have some positions and you have some players who would seem to potentially, you know, have that kind of elite ability, how do you, how do you balance the offense within that, especially from a running back situation that is still a little bit, there's reasons to be optimistic, but you're, it's still one that maybe lacks the upside that LSU had last year. And we'll talk about that later. 
Stephen, what was your big takeaway with how LSU went after people? Yeah, with <clears throat> where everything LSU did in the games I watched, we've seen Ohio State do in the two years that I've been covering this team. Two two thousand eighteen, we saw Ohio State use RPOs and this as part of his play calling. Obviously, they weren't as effective as LSU were in doing it, and a lot of that was because you know the offensive line didn't necessarily. That wasn't their favorite thing to do was block for RPO plays, but we've seen them try to apply that to their game, to a play call, apply that to a game. We've seen the empty set wide, five wide receivers with Ohio State, just like we saw with with LSU. The only real thing that they that the LSU did that Ohio State doesn't do as far as play calling is use their tight ends nearly as often as LSU did. Oh, I. I'm so glad you brought that up. I have 40 minutes on tight end usage ahead. Oh yeah, that's that. <laughs> I, 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 oh yeah. That, 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 outside of that, everything else that LSU was was doing since Ryan Day has been here, Ohio State's been doing if their quarterback was was talented enough to do it. <clears throat> I agree with that, and it's interesting. I, I have I I have some stat comparisons I want to get to. Actually, we'll do that now on Ohio State 18, Ohio State 19, and LSU 19. Because I think the big point of this that you brought up, Stephen, is that um, you have to have Ohio State 2018 in your head as you're going through here because actually what Ohio State tried to do, and this is not news to our smart and loyal Buckeye Talk listeners who could also be friends of the pod by joining our tech subscription at 614-350-3315. I sent out a little note the other day that we had gone over a 1,000 messages that going out from us to our tech subscribers in the 14 months or so since we started this. And immediately we got like six or seven more subscribers. So if you want to try it, 14-day free trial, four bucks a month, send a text to 614-350-3315. Just watching Ohio State 2019 versus LSU 2019, how much would you say the way they attacked defenses, how much did they have in common and how much did they go about it in very different ways, Nathan? There were a couple of ways that I thought that LSU w- was pretty different. Um, I-, I thought they attacked vertically out of the slot in a way that Ohio State didn't necessarily with KJ Hill. But very is much. going to, but is going to in 2020. But it's another exactly, great point, exactly. Another great point. Another great point. But you, you talk again, talking, comparing 2019, that was one of the stark differences I saw. And the first thing I, you know, that, that thought comes in your head. And then immediately after, as you're sitting there watching it, you're like, oh, that's probably what Gary Wilson's going to do in yeah. 2020 um you would hope you would hope right i mean that's it, it would i think it would be kind of a wasted opportunity if they don't do that with him um the tight end usage also and then also there were some some things i don't want to call them gimmicky but think you know they were um they were willing to put a wide receiver in the backfield and 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 run them on routes out of the backfield in a way that i didn't see ohio state necessarily do last year now some of that was happening in the oklahoma game that i saw where uh, claude over to Hilaire was banged up so they were they were doing some different things there that that night but i also just saw again maybe just a a the way that they were willing to kind of mix things up across the whole offense i thought was interesting um not that ohio state is is um boring by any means but you know lsu i thought was really willing to to mix things around and 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 utilize guys in unconventional spots even if it's just to give a look um, the other thing you want to remember with that Oklahoma game, and it, it was hard to get a read on stuff. I just think LSU at one point was just like doing a favor for that high school team and saying like, here's different looks. You guys can watch this on film now as we score seven touchdowns on you in the first half. I think they were doing that high school team a favor and Joe is just showing them, 
what a college offense does. So they were throwing some wrinkles in there. Um, it is going to be a mix for Ohio State in 2020. It's going to be a mix of what they did in 2018 and a mix in 2019. And I thought the overwhelming thing to me, and I have a lot of specifics about this, but I felt like every snap in 2019, LSU's pass game felt dangerous. Every snap. And almost that when they had five wide and typically it was one tight end and one running back with the three receivers, all five of those guys at once were dangerous on every play. And the most dangerous thing to me, it felt like you would watch Joe Burrow take that shotgun snap and five guys would release off the line and they all started. The first three steps were all downfield. Um, They were attacking. They weren't running like a lot of bubble screens. They weren't doing like a lot of little short stuff. They threw to the middle a lot, which I want to get into, but it just felt like they're coming after you in the pass game every play. And that's what was so dangerous about them. I, in rewatching Ohio State 2019, the most dangerous thing to me about Ohio State in 2019 was when they'd run wide zone and J.K. Dobbins would get to the edge and he would start to turn up field. And it was like, uh-oh, like, here they go. That was Ohio State at its most dangerous. It was not at all close in the pass game to being – as attacking and as dangerous as LSU was on a snap-by-snap basis. And I think as we think about Ohio State 2020, it's a reminder to me that Ohio State is not going to be dangerous like that in the run game, not like J.K. Man, that guy just, especially that, that Penn State game, the first two drives, he just was slamming Penn State, just snap after snap, between the tackles, off tackle, just killing them. And Ohio State's not going to be able to do that. They're just not. They just don't have JK. So they're going to have to be, like I didn't think there was very much to compare in this style of attack in 2019. It just, uh, watching, going, going to watch Ohio State, Penn State, right after watching LSU Alabama, it was like, boy, this is totally different. But I can, you can totally see how Ohio State's going to have to change to that. Steven, do you think Ohio State can feel that dangerous with the passing game attack in 2020? I think it's going to have to be a schematic play calling change by Ryan Day that's going to be based in part off not having a J.K. Dobbins back, but also in part by having Justin Fields in year two. Did you feel that danger from LSU? And do you think Ohio State can replicate that feeling of danger? Yes, but also, you know, you had the talent that was the talent there necessary to have an offense that made you feel dangerous every time you took a snap. Ohio State didn't necessarily have that from every single receiver who was in the rotation in 2019. The talent level is has gone up a step in 2020 to where now it's not only just, you know, the play calling and, you know, the way you go about, you know, the first three steps are downfield for everybody and everybody feels dangerous every single snap, but also, you know, the talent level, you know, kind of suggests to that as well as you have to think about every, everybody now is a threat to do everything on the field in the way that they weren't in 2019, just because of the talent level in the wide receiver room this year. And uh, in the for both of you, when you think about, 
<laughs> that the talent there is going to be a talent level drop off at running back for Ohio State from 2019 to 2020. And I think we all expect there will be a talent level increase at receiver from 2019 to 2020. Which one will be bigger? The drop off at running back or the increase at receiver? Nathan. That's a fantastic question. Because I think um, it's all about this balance, right? And I do think yeah. Stephen, Stephen brought up the point right away at the top that you have to, we've seen Ryan Day sort of do two very different offensive plans. And he did it, and 17 was even different. All three years of Ryan Day running this offense, none have been exactly the same. He is a coach who, who uses the strengths of his personnel. But trying to figure out that balance and whether, you know, one will go up a little bit as much as one goes down, I, I'm not sure where I am. And watching this LSU games um, these last couple of days, I, it reframed for me a little bit. It's not that I don't think Ohio State's going to have a pretty great offense in 2020, but it, it reinforced what it means. Like LSU had mature NFL receiver talent on the field for every snap. Um, that's another distinct difference from what Ohio State had in 2019. Um, they had really solid Big Ten receivers. You know, those seniors, we talked about them. They're productive. They did good things for this program their entire careers, but they weren't chasing Jefferson. And I don't know if LSU – or I don't know if Ohio State, even this coming season, is going to consistently put as much mature NFL receiver talent on the field at all times, especially because of the way they rotate those guys. LSU doesn't necessarily do that the same way. Um, but – so I guess I would – having said that, though, I would still probably say that the – so the bigger drop-off I think will probably be at running back. So I think this also reinforced to me. When I'm watching Claude Edwards-Hilaire, and I'm, I'm really impressed by a lot of things I'm seeing, but I can also – and I didn't go back and watch more Ohio State games this week like you did, but – I, because I saw them all last year multiple times and I can, I almost every single time I can think of, Oh, here's the time that JK Dobbins did kind of that same thing. We're seeing him do, you know, running through contact and, and turning what could have been a trip up into a big gain up the middle or the way he gets to the edge or some of the things he does in the receiving game. I, I, I felt like that they were pretty comparable players. So I feel like that's where there's still a, a much bigger danger of there being a big drop-off, just in terms of the running back talent. Now, as we've talked about before, with an offensive line that Ohio State has, which I think is, is one of the areas where Ohio State is clearly better than LSU um, or will be in 2020, that can make up for some of that. Steven, what, what do you think will be greater, the receiver increase or the running back drop-off? I think the receiver increase, I don't think anybody has to be as good as J.K. Dobbins or even in the vicinity of where J.K. Dobbins was in 2019 in that running back room for 2020. Clyde Andrews Hilaire only ran the ball 14 times a game. So it, the, the, a bulk of his impact came from the fact that you know, he also caught 55 passes last year. So uh, unless, you know, that's more of the question here. Are, are Trey Sermon or Master Chi going to, you know, are they going to be implemented into the passing game a lot more often than, you know, the running back was in 2019 for Ohio State? Because they're, they're not going to necessarily have to get have to get the ball 20-plus times a game to be the lead back if, if we're comparing it to how LSU did things and the way they, they called plays in 2019. If Ohio State's going to be anywhere near that, okay, you're only getting the ball 14 times a game coming out of the backfield. So, no, you, the drop off at running back as far, as far as his ability to carry the ball might not be as good as it was in 2019, but it also isn't going to have to be because he's not going to be getting the ball at the same volume. It's interesting. I think that's an important distinction here because I think 
Um, I think we all agree, everybody listening to this agrees, that Ohio State is going to throw the ball more in 2020 than they did in 2019. And I guess it's more do you view it that Ohio State is going to throw more in 2020 because of its talent in the pass game, and therefore it's not as big of a deal that there's going to be a running back drop-off? Or is it more like there is going to be a running back drop-off, so they have to throw the ball more? And it's the same result, but I think it's a slight distinction. And I would say that is when we're just talking about the way you attack. And again, we're, we're going over some ground that people know, but I think it's important to, to reset the foundation here on some of this stuff. When you look at Clyde Edwards-Alaire from LSU and Travis Etienne from Clemson, both of them were clearly, <clears throat> clearly complementary backs. I think they could have been more. We had a discussion during the season last year about like, well, look at, you know, even I think it was after the season, people saying, well, look, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, he wasn't all that great. We, Ohio State can have a running back that good. And when your passing game's awesome, your running back doesn't have to be great. It's like, man, he was good. He was the first running back taken in the NFL draft. Like he's almost a J.K. Dobbins level talent who is not a primary component of the offense, at least running the ball. Clemson and LSU were both clearly pass first teams with a complimentary run game. Ohio State in 2019 was 1,000% a run-first team with a pass game that complemented that. They cannot be a run-first team in 2020. I don't think they have the ability to do it, not with their running back. I don't think they're a national championship-level offense leaning on Trey Sermon, Marcus Crowley, and Master Teague. With J.K. Dobbins, they were that. With Ezekiel Elliott, they were that. They've had many running backs. With Beanie Wells, they could be that. You know, With Eddie George, they could be that. It's a high bar for Ohio State running backs, but there are absolutely teams of recent vintage that have reached that level. So I view it a little more as Ohio State has to be more like the 2019 LSU offense and how they attack because they cannot be like the 2019 Ohio State offense. Because I'm telling you, man, when J.K. Dobbins got the ball and got downhill a little bit and either got to the edge or got a hole inside, it felt scary. And I was reminded of that. And I felt the danger with LSU, and I felt the same level of danger with Ohio State, but in a completely different way. So for Ohio State to be as dangerous, they have to be LSU dangerous. They can't be Ohio State dangerous, not from last year. So I think that is a huge distinction. I'm a little bit more like they better throw it like LSU as opposed to like they're going to throw it like LSU, so no big deal that they don't have the running back. I feel like more like they have no choice. If they don't feel as dangerous in the pass game as LSU, their offense is going to take a step back. Because it, it, J.K., man, is was a – oh, God, the guy, the guy just got after it. Wasn't perfect. Got caught from behind, right? But just an absolute monster with vision, with downhill burst, in the first three to five yards off the line of scrimmage, not going down on contact, just like really a reminder for me on that. So that just stood out to me. A couple of the things I want to talk about from the play calling standpoint. I thought formationally LSU threw more at you than Ohio State typically does. They ran a lot of those stack sets, and they would go back and forth like an accordion with their formations between the receivers being stacked really close to the offensive line 
between the hashes, and then they go back out wide. And you can feel the different way that threatens a defense. They'd be in tight like that, and then they'd explode out of that and throw, and then sometimes they'd be wide. When they ran, and we'll, Nathan, you made the point about the offensive lines, and we'll get to that. But when LSU ran, they ran effectively because they were spread wide. A defense was back on its heels because of the pass game, and then they'd pop you with the run game. But I thought formationally they were more interesting than Ohio State typically is. Um, and they did some interesting, like, rub route concepts out of that. There were a couple times they got guys free. It's not at all picks, but it was never close to being called, but just enough to get a rub on a defender to spring some of these NFL-level receivers. I, I just thought it seemed a little more creative than what we see from Ohio State on a regular basis. doesn't mean Ohio State couldn't do that, but I feel like maybe Ryan Day doesn't, doesn't emphasize the formational um, – back and forth as much. What did you think of that, Nathan? I think there's something to that, but I also think that, that maybe LSU could do some, felt like it could do some things that Ohio State maybe couldn't last year because of some of the differences in, in the, the, the top of the receiver depth chart talent, things like that. Like you can, maybe they felt like, maybe Ohio State felt like it had to be a little bit more conventional in order to execute some of the things it needed to do. But also, as you pointed out, you're also talking about a, a run first offense versus <laughs> A, a, a pass first offense or, or a pass kind of centered offense. So I think that also probably factored into it. I am interested to see though, that once you start stacking the kind of talent that Ohio state is going to have, you would think a receiver here coming into this season um, where it does start to get deeper and you start to see um, more guys out there with the potential to do special things. How does Ohio state, first of all, get that on the field um, in, in as, in as varied a way as possible, but then also, um, how does it line that up and how does it try to, you know, flip things and not, now make, make defenses react to the kind of maybe the unconventional things that they're doing on top of also having to just line up and, and, and defend those guys head to head. Another component of it, and Stephen, you brought this up, the RPO, depending on the game, I mean, LSU was just RPO heavy um, with Burrow making that read in the run game. And then when he kept it, throwing quick slants, middle of the field, um, hitting those guys on the move. I, you mentioned it, Stephen, RPO. It was, it's so different. And we see uh, Ryan Day can do it. It's a matter of can Justin Fields do it? And he can do it. Can he be comfortable with it? Because as a quarterback, when you're throwing off that run read, and again, Ohio State fans are very familiar with the zone read where the quarterback is making a read based on how the defensive end crashes or stays home on whether to give it to the running back or keep it himself. And Ohio State does that in multiple ways. Um, they can be really dangerous. You can go quarterback run inside, running back goes outside. You can go running back goes inside, quarterback goes outside. And when you have two skilled guys at that mesh point and they're both dangerous, it's very hard for a defense to deal with. We've seen Ohio State quarterbacks do that over the years. And I've said a million times, JT Barrett was great at making that read. I think Justin Fields in general in the read game has a little bit of a, of a ways to come. Good, can be good, um, I think will be better. But the RPO is a different animal because it's like if I, if I don't hand it off, now i got to throw it right away. And your eyes are upfield. You're reading the end. You're reading the route a little bit. You're reading this stuff clogged up in the middle of the field. Burrow is picking people apart with that, and it was part of the engine that made that offense go. I think when you're – when your run game isn't super dangerous because we're going to, and we'll get into this with the quarterbacks, how much are they going to run Justin Fields in, in 2020? Then that throw off the read becomes really dangerous 
we've seen Ohio State struggle with that. They tried it a lot with Dwayne Haskins in 2018. Then they got away from it a little bit because they had some problems with it. They weren't comfortable blocking it. Do you think that's going to be a big part of the offense, Stephen, in 2020, running RPOs with this run-pass option? Or would you imagine that they'll run zone read in the run game and then, you know, just do some stuff where, where Justin Fields is going to stand there and, and, and pick apart defenses in the pass game, but it won't necessarily be out of RPO concepts? Yeah, I don't think they, they're going to add an RPO to this offense. But part of the reason why they did it in 2018 was because Dwayne Haskins wasn't a run threat, and, so, and you had to find ways to keep a defense on its heels. And the best way they could do that was to go RPOs. But then, you know, the offensive line didn't really like blocking forward and it didn't necessarily work to the best of their ability. Justin Fields can run the ball. So there's no reason to go away from a, a regular zone read and just run that and have him as the run threat he is. Keep, hold on to it, especially in certain situations where you absolutely need a first down and he's your best run threat. And then and when you're going to throw it, you're going to have him sit back there in that pocket and pick teams apart. I don't, he's a better run threat than either Joe Burrow or Dwayne Haskins was for their respective teams to the point that you don't necessarily need to introduce an RPO thing into the uh, RPO plan into Ohio State's offense because of that. I don't think OSU is going to do RPOs as much as LSU did. A lot of acronyms in there. I don't think they're going to do it as much as LSU did last year. But I do think it is sort of a natural progression for this offense to incorporate <laughs> that more in 2020 um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, as Doug, as you just said, when you don't necessarily have an explosive offense – or, or running game. This is a way to kind of juice that a little bit. Um, in addition to what I've seen with my eyes watching the film, I, I looked up some stuff and um, Pro Football Focus pointed out last year on plays where RPO ended in a handoff to the running back for LSU, they averaged 7.0 yards per play, which was 2.7 yards more than on the non-RPO rushing plays. So they were getting, you know, the difference between averaging 4.7 yards a carry and 7.0 yards per carry on their run games out of these RPOs. And now a lot of that is just the danger that the, that, that Burrow and the receiving core brings to the field, but that's kind of, that's where we're going to maybe see more similarities with what, what OSU has, Ohio state has this year with fields and the talent that they're bringing at, at the running game. Um, and I, you know, now LSU ran RPOs about 22% of the time last year. It's almost a quarter of their offenses RPOs. I don't think Ohio state's going to get to that level, but I could see them just doing it more because I think, when you when you have a quarterback like Justin Fields and you can make anybody bite more often on the run, you get that safety. It doesn't even have to come in, right? If he just stops on his heels for that one step, and now Garrett Wilson is is jetting downfield and you can hit him, um, I think it, it opens up some really explosive things. I think the final part of that is, as part of the RPO, uh, LSU threw the middle of the field a lot off those RPOs. They're throwing quick hitter slants over the middle, and that's where they got that's where they got a lot of their juice because um, they had they'd hit guys on the move, and when they hit those guys, they could do something with it right away. You don't have to run RPO to throw to the middle of the field, but I was looking at some passing charts. I won't get into the nitty gritty, um, but reading, looking at. Joe Burrow passing charts from 2019 and where he threw the ball. And then our friend Bill Landis did a big Justin Fields passing chart because uh, since the end of the last season, he'd charted every Justin Fields throw and wrote a story about that for the athletic. Um, Justin Fields just threw the ball to the sidelines a lot more. And we talked a lot about those sideline throws. I wrote a whole story about some of the sideline throws that Justin Fields was making last year. Then as soon as I wrote about it, he stopped doing it as much, but, Justin Fields was making NFL throws on a regular basis. You're throwing to, from the opposite hash to the sideline, way across the field. If you don't have arm strength, 
you're setting yourself up for a pick six on some of those things. He has absolutely the arm strength to make NFL throws like that. But Ohio State worked a lot of their receivers outside the hashes, single coverage. It doesn't, the safety can't get over there. Um, and the one thing, Ohio State often gets open because they run really crisp routes. And we've talked about that. They are very precise. They run more precise routes than some NFL teams. LSU was getting some guys open um, more, I think, just off schematically, more off some of those rub route concepts, stuff like that. But again, Gary Danielson, I don't know what the SEC has been doing for 20 years. Oh, oh, LSU was throwing the ball in the middle of the field, and Gary Danielson, again, was like, this is rocket science. Look at them throw. But we always talk about that. That's why people talk about throwing to the tight end. They mean middle of the field. The middle of the field is always open. And when you can throw intermediate middle over the linebackers in front of the safeties, when you can make 15-yard throws over the middle, that is there all day. And when you can hit guys on the move, that is dangerous. That is how LSU is dangerous. I'm curious about the ability of Justin Fields to do that. He did not, he was not asked to do that as much. Last year was year two of Joe Burrow as a starting quarterback. It was year one of Justin Fields as a starting quarterback. We know he can make, that Justin Fields can make NFL throws to the sideline. It doesn't have to be RPO, but in 18 with Dwayne Haskins, especially with those slot guys, Paris Campbell and KJ Hill, but some other guys, Johnny Dixon made money on it. The mesh routes in the middle of the field where they're running crossers, where they're running Two guys who, again, are getting a little rub on defenders, middle of the field, and you hit them on the move. They went to that a lot. That was a hallmark early. And in 17, that was a hallmark early of the Ryan Day offense. Did not use it much last year, and I understand why. I think the next level, I think for the Ohio State passing offense to be as dangerous as LSU, they've got to use the middle of the field more. And that's just going to be a decision by Ryan Day to ask Justin Fields to do it and then Justin Fields to show the ability to do it. I think he has it, but that was such a primary part of why LSU is dangerous. I think Fields makes the out throw better than Burrow. I think he makes that hard throw to the sideline from the opposite hash better than Joe Burrow did. I think Justin Fields has more arm talent that way. So if you now ask him to go middle of the field with some of these crossers, and especially Garrett Wilson out of the slot, maybe getting a little rub and getting in the middle of the field, catching the ball nine yards down the field on the move, that is money time. I, I don't know. I think the way LSU – Gary Danielson was talking, citing stats, they did like two-thirds of their passing offense was the middle of the field. It's so dangerous if you can do it. It's the thing that stood out so much. Do you, do you think they will that Ryan Day will ask Justin Fields to do that in 2020? And how, how well do you think he can execute that, Stephen? And I think so, because that's the next evolution with Justin Fields as a passer is being able to throw things across the middle accurately, you know, and maybe pull back a bit on that arm strength, which is part of why he makes those out throws so well, so it looks so easy is because he has such a high arm strength. And, you know, throwing across the middle isn't just arm strength. That's a lot of accuracy and some and other things other than just being able to throw the ball ball into somewhere. So I think that's the next step in his development. And you'll see some things similar to, once again, 2018, a lot of those mesh routes that Ohio State was running that Dwayne Haskins used against Michigan and picked apart a defense for 60 minutes. That That's the next evolution for Justin Fields is to be able to add that into this, to this game. And with the wide receiver talent they have, he's gonna, that's something they're going to have to do this year. Nathan, what did you think of LSU's ability to throw in the middle of the field and, and, and how that might – translate to Ohio State in 2020? Well, it, what I tried to do was 
watch a play and then take what I know of Justin Fields and what I've seen Justin Fields do and kind of put him out on the field and say, could he have executed that the same way? And, and I, I kept coming back to, I think he can, because I feel like he has, you know, as Steven's talking about, it's not just the next evolution for the offense. I think Justin already has the skill set to be able to do a lot of these things. I think he's got the arm strength and the accuracy, but more than that, I think it's his vision. I think he's got, you know, enough height so that the, the middle of the field's not going to be too crowded for him, but the way he keeps his head up, the way he looks downfield, the way he makes decisions, I think really fit into being able to incorporate more RPOs and being able to, to and, and use that specifically to really attack the middle of the field, but also just attack the middle of the field in general. And as we've also already mentioned, I think the, the weaponry changes for Ohio State in the middle of the field this year, because as talented as KJ Hill was, Garrett Wilson is a different kind of talent that I think they can utilize in some other ways. I, I think there's, there's room to utilize um, Farrell and Ruckert, especially as receivers in the middle of the field, you know, uh, either, from when they're lining up tight or when you break them out um, wide. There, I think there's just there's room for the middle of the field to be utilized more within this offense. I think what they did with it last year made sense in the framework that they had. Um, you would attack the middle of the field with J.K. Dobbins. You would attack in, in different ways uh, with the running game or, or with Fields himself. But I think it's, it's opened up now to really kind of take the top off the middle of the field if they choose to do it. All right, so let's lead into that. That's the play calling segment. Let's break down some of the more specifics about the positions, and let's roll right into receiver. Uh, receiver and tight end. Nathan, you were just talking about it. Um, my initial impression, my off-the-top things were, and then I, like, switched. Actually, I, I thought I had it, and then I was like, no, maybe I have it exactly opposite wrong. Justin Jefferson last year for LSU had 111 catches for 1,540 yards, 13.9 yards per catch. Um, Jamar Chase, 84 catches, 1,780 yards, 21.2 yards per catch. LSU was so good. I, I, I lost track of the times where they would need a third down and hit Justin Jefferson on a crossing route over the middle of the field to pick up a first down and then – they'd come out on first down and go deep to Jamar Chase. And it was just like, God, like they have a guy who can do both. Jefferson got you the catches to keep drives alive, and then Jamar Chase plunged the knife in. He was so dangerous down the field. And I initially thought, okay, I think Chris Olave can be Justin Jefferson, and I think Garrett Wilson can be Jamar Chase. And then I thought, no. I think maybe that's exactly opposite. Maybe it's, it's that Garrett way. Wilson is Justin Jefferson. But I, Jamar Chase is so physical. And when the ball is in the air, he's so physical. Olave does make great plays on the ball. And then Olave made a catch against Penn State that I was like, yep, that was a Jamar Chase catch. But I do feel like between the two of those guys, I think like Justin Jefferson, who was I think the 22nd pick in this draft, Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Not, not, not Randy Moss. You know what I mean? Like good receiver. Not such a rare physical talent that you couldn't find a guy like that. Jamar Chase, freaky deaky man. Woo, that guy. Yeah. So, but but I thought in the ter- in terms of those two guys, I I think Ohio State has it. So you guys both agree that Olave is Chase and Wilson is Jefferson. Steven, what, what do you think of the comparison of the receiver talent? It's, that's a perfect comparison because Jefferson a lot of times was in the slot. Well, Garrett Wilson's going to be in the slot. 
while Jamar Chase is the outside guy and Chris Olave is the outside guy. So it's you saw you we kind of alluded to it earlier. They also threw the ball to Justin Jefferson down the field in the slot. Well, they're going to do that with Garrett Wilson this year. They haven't done that with slot receivers in the past. While we already know Chris Olave can be a downfield threat for Ohio State, he showed that all last season that he can be that for Justin Fields. So though as a that's a perfect comparison. Now, are they the same level of NFL talent? Probably not, because of course Olave is not as good as Jamar Chase is. And I mean, we'll see with Garrett Wilson if he's a first-round receiver the way Justin Jefferson was. But as far as the way they're going to be used next season in 2020, it's very similar to how LSU used Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase in 2019. Like. Possibly as good. I mean, again, that's this the whole exercise here, right? That we're doing is a little bonkers. Our exercise is: Can Ohio State be compared to the greatest college football offense of all time? Basically. So, like anything we say critically, or uh, you know, that w- if we have any doubts about Ohio State, it's only in this comparison because that's what people wanted. And I, actually, I forgot to read some of the texture questions that drove this idea. We'll get to them a little bit later. Uh, because we always appreciate when our texters give us ideas. And this this idea came straight from texters, Luke from Denver among them, who who was asking about this direct comparison. Um they're great. Gosh, the, they they what what LSU had at receiver last year is is what you want. And then Terrence Mitchell is a, a really good uh no, Terrence Marshall, right? Is it Mitchell or Marshall? Marshall. Terrence Marshall. As a third guy, um 46 catches for 671, good option as well. Made some big plays. Um, He had 13 touchdowns. Chase had 20. Jefferson had 18. Marshall had 13. How close could the talent be, Nathan, in 2020? If, if, If that's the model of receiver talent for a great offense, could Ohio State have 95% of that? Could they have 100% of it? Is it more like now if they can be 80% of that, that's really good? Where is it? Well, it's, it, it's a somewhat difficult comparison to make if Ohio State is going to rotate their guys in a way that LSU doesn't. I feel like LSU, like I was saying before, like I, feel, I felt like every snap I watched, I, you weren't taking a, a step back from Chase and Jefferson. I felt like those guys were just this presence that's always on the field. That's what makes them dangerous on every snap, like what you're talking about. And I don't know that Ohio State rotating four guys at two spots, at those two comparative spots in 2020, gets their talent-wise what LSU was doing at those two spots in 2019. Okay, so to that point, let me jump in real quick. There wasn't a spring football, so these – as top 100 receivers, those those four top 100 receivers who are freshmen, they lost a little bit of that you know thing that puts them ahead of the eight ball a little bit. So what if they're not completely ready the first few weeks of the season? And Ohio State is in a, a situation where you know Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson have to play 90% of the snaps just so you know those four fresh whoever ends up also in the rotation, i.e. you know Julian Fleming, G Scott, and Jackson Smith and Jigba, whoever else is in that rotation, as they're figuring that out, those two guys are on the field for basically 90% of the snaps. I mean, they kept KJ Hill on the field last year. Right. And that's, that's what we'll see. We'll see that, that, that may, that may follow through this year. Maybe they decided to do that, but they, they weren't doing it last year other than that, the slot. And especially in the slot position where, yes, Jackson Smith and Jigba has shown that he could probably be something there. He compared himself to K.J. Hill, and Mookie Cooper is going to be something 
eventually will be a part of that rotation. But what if there is a, a in year one of those guys, in year one of Garrett Wilson being a slot, there is a nice little drop off from Garrett Wilson to whoever slot guy number two is to where it is a KJ Hill situation where we're just going to stick with Garrett Wilson and then we'll have some 12 personnel, two tight end sets as the, the alternative. I, I do find that to be a very interesting point because when they really do it, they just rotate series to series. And you look out there and it's like, oh, it's Ben Victor's turn. Nope, it's Austin Mack's turn. Nope, you know, like that's just – it's just a straight rotation, series to series. And, and like they just do the exact same thing. And so I did do, for instance, um, last year as a comparison, K.J. Hill, 57 catches for – 636 yards. Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, if they were one person, they had 78 catches for 1,272 yards. And Ben Victor, Austin Mack, if they were one person, had 62 catches for 934 yards. So I I understand your point, Nathan, but part of it is too is like how close, right? Like like how much of a drop-off is there, but – from a statistical standpoint, you then just have to take the rotation and treat it as one guy, right? So if if Justin Jefferson had 1,540 yards and 111 catches, you know, that's quite a bit better than Ben Victor Ostomac at 62 combined for 934. So um, it's a very interesting point to make because the receiver talent is there, but it's so young and they're so held back by what they're missing they're going to miss stuff just throwing with Justin Fields this summer. Um, and we've seen it with K.J. Hill. They did not force it last year. And I think maybe there would be a world where Olave plays like 75 or 80% of the snaps. Wilson plays 75 or 80% of the snaps. They do a true rotation at the second outside receiver. And they work in some of these freshmen slowly. I th- Steven, it sounds like you think that actually might be what actually does happen. I think so. I think – Chris Olave and, and Garrett Wilson played 75 to 80% of the snaps. And then that other outside spot is probably a rotation between G. Scott and Julian Fleming. I can see that. And it's why I said that it's a hard comparison to make at this point, just because you, you, you kind of have to base it off what we've seen Ohio State do here these last couple of years with Ryan Day being involved in deciding how that works and how that rotation works. And, and they and, did that long before, Rob. I mean, that was Urban exactly Meyer. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm saying even, even if you're just basing it on what – Ryan Day has done. That's still been the, the practice here. So I, I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially under the circumstances um, of what happened this spring. And because they're all freshmen, I, I think it makes sense to lean more towards the veteran guys, especially again, the other wrinkle here is as we've talked about before, as solid as Victor and Mac and, and those guys were, they didn't necessarily separate from the pack of guys coming in behind them. Um, which is why there was maybe it made more sense to rotate. If Olave and if Wilson are are clearly another level above the other guys, then it's I feel like it's almost malpractice to rotate those guys in a 50-50 way. I think you've got to lean heavily snap wise on the guys who are clearly better. And and the proof we have is that that's what they did in the slot last year, right? right? That, that right. Was, when Paris yeah, Campbell that's, was that's here. That's interesting. I'm yeah. sorry, that, but that, but that is what's interesting because now we're talking about 2020 as like, well, maybe they'll just give all that snow snaps to Wilson. Well, I feel like there's actually more depth of potential slot talent this year than there was last year, right? 
No, well, but the but it's about the drop off. It's it's mm-hmm. that KJ Hill was like wound up as the leading receiver in Ohio State history, and then everybody else was like Jalen Gill or Demario McCall or like a bunch of question marks who've never really played. So right, it's one thing is depth, but the gap. It's the gap, I think, and I think the gap was so stark. We may be in a position just because of what is being exacerbated by those young freshmen missing out on off-season snaps, we may be in a place where the gap is bigger than usual, which will lead to some decisions about playing time that might be different than what we've seen in the past. In general, though, I thought maybe going into this, I would watch LSU and think, well, they can't be that, like from when we're talking about receiver talent. Did you come away thinking that is ridiculous we cannot have an expectation of Ohio State receivers playing like that or did you watch that more and think yeah I, I could see how Ohio State could be that or close to it uh I don't think it's unrealistic to think that they could play at that level um, num- the num- take away the numbers and just the way that they were playing and just look at the way that they were playing I don't think it's unreasonable to think especially you know with Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson that they can't be to some extent, you know, what Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson were for LSU last year, and that's two dominant receivers. Yeah, I just – I don't know yet that I – especially because Wilson is is moving spots a little bit. I, I just – I don't know if I would – if I see – if I'm ready to commit to them being Chase and Jefferson. I think um, Jefferson, I think, filled a role, right, that he he did a good job getting open, but they, there were just ways about they played – the way they played offense and the way Burrow threw the ball that – Justin Jefferson was put in situations to make plays. The, Jamar Chase is the guy who's, who I think is, is separates, and everybody agrees with this. It's sort of a, a rare talent. The one thing that I think you need to see, and I thought Burrow did this a decent amount, especially with Chase, is he threw it up and let him go get it. And we yeah. talked, I talked about all you know the 50-50 balls that Deshaun Watson was throwing in 2016 when Ohio State wouldn't throw it. Um, Justin Fields has to take some risks in 2020. And – I was thinking about that and trying to think about how Justin Fields was so careful with the ball. He hardly threw any picks. And then like the get the touchdown that put away Penn state was a ball in the corner of the end zone that Chris Olave mm-hmm. jumped up and caught between two guys because Justin Fields put it up and let his guy go get it. And Chris Olave was like, I got it. And I was like, okay, that actually was a Jamar chase play right there to beat Penn state. So there are moments where we see it. Um, and I think they're going to have to emphasize that. And I think they can't be afraid of it. And they have to lean into the playmaking ability of the receivers. And, and it, Burrow threw six picks, I think, last year. He wasn't throwing picks all over the place. But they took shots, man. They gave they gave opportunities. Jefferson on crossers on the move, chased down the field, coming back to the ball, jumping up and making plays. And then I thought the the one point that we made is, that slot fade with Garrett Wilson where you attack down the field out of the slot. K.J. Hill caught a touchdown, about a 25 or 30-yard touchdown against Penn State where he ran that out of the slot. He sort of he ran down the field, then faded out towards the left corner, and you basically shield the defender with your body, and he can't get to you. And it felt like, man, like Garrett Wilson might score 15 touchdowns on that in 2020. I saw K.J. Hill do it once. That I think there is some potential um, with the type of routes they ask these guys to run I actually came away. I thought maybe I was going to be more like 
that was ridiculous. Ohio State cannot set that level of expectation. And I came away more thinking, I think Wilson Olave are in the ballpark, have the chance to be in the ballpark if they peak and if Ohio State's play calling and the trust that Justin Fields has in them allows them to go out and try to make plays. They were, I, I came away believing in their ability to mimic what LSU did more than I anticipated going in. And I, and I feel like Justin Fields' ability is a critical component of that too. Cause I don't think we're talking about what these receivers could possibly do. If you didn't have a quarterback who could potentially put them in position to do some of those things. And we'll get into this with the quarterback. Burrow makes a lot of plays out of structure, man. Burrow does a lot with avoiding a rush, breaking the pocket, and then it's scrambled drill time. And, his receivers were in sync with him on a lot of that stuff, which we've seen Justin Fields do. But it's like, as 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 much as we've been talking about the efficiency and the, the scheme scheming it up offensively, they did they made a lot of money on broken plays. Um, and I think that's going to be critical. We'll get into that with with the quarterbacks a little bit. I think that's going to be critical for Ohio State in 2020 as well. Let's go offensive line, Nathan. You mentioned this early on. What did you think of the offensive line comparison between LSU 2019 and what Ohio State will be in 2020? I wasn't, you know, I, I thought Ohio State's offensive line, or sorry, I thought LSU's offensive line was solid. Um, I don't know that I saw, again, from just the glimpses that I saw, I don't, I didn't see a lot of like special stuff. I didn't see them necessarily going out and, and flattening guys downfield the way I saw on a handful of occasions last year with Ohio State. I will say that, though, that I don't, it wasn't, I don't know if it was a weakness. I think it was, it was kind of no. like the way people talk about, Ellis, it's kind of the way people talk about Ohio State's linebackers almost. It's like, okay, they weren't as good as Chase Young in the defensive line. They weren't as good as Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett and the secondary. doesn't mean they were terrible. They, they, were won, just, they won the award as the best offensive line in college football. Nobody thinks they're terrible. Right. Um, so I, 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 it was just when, 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 they gave people, when they gave Burrow time, the game was over basically, right? I mean, it was just – I, I thought it was it was it was a great mixture of of just getting a an offensive line that could could go out and 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 defend any of those looks and once they and, and because they could handle any of those fronts, Burrow had all the time in the world to work on on any given game and that's the, the end result. You saw what happened. But who who will be better, Ohio State's twenty twenty line or LSU's twenty nineteen? You're breathing. You just talked about how you you were acting like they sucked and saying, "Well, they're not terrible." And now you're, you're I, taking I think, a breath no, no, about I, Ohio I, I State. Think, well, but we still we still don't know two spots exactly who's going to play for Ohio State. But I, I think, think Ohio I think Ohio, Ohio State will be better, much yeah, better. Steven much better. First of all, yes, LSU won the Joe Moore Award last year, but another finalist for that award was Ohio State in 2019. And yes, Jonah Jackson is no longer with Ohio State, but you still got Wyatt Davis, who's probably going to be an All American. You got. Josh Myers, who might be an All-American. You have Darren Munford back as a third-year starter. And then, yes, you lost two guys, but you're replacing them with five stars. Harry Miller is a five-star guy. All right, either Nick, Nicholas Petit-Frere or Paris Johnson will be the starter at right tackle, and that's a, those are two top ten five-star guys in their respective recruiting classes. So Ohio State will, will definitely have the better offensive line in, between 2019 LSU and 2020 Ohio State. I was Petit-Frere was a five-star last year in – barely got on the field. So, I mean, again, I want to see those guys perform before I anoint them as being great. But I, I think, again, what you're talking about with the two interior guys, 
Munford being a third-year starter at left tackle, I, I think the ceiling is there for Ohio State to be better than LSU was last week. LSU, uh, in the draft, they had an offensive lineman go in the third round, pick 69, in the third round, pick 83, in the fourth round, pick 108, and in the sixth round, pick 185. So solid. No Josh Myers or Wyatt Davis on that line. I was not impressed. I actually thought they were going to be – I just knew they won the Joe Moore Award as the best offensive line. I thought Burrow made them look good. I thought Burrow found lanes to escape. I agree, Nathan. What made them so dangerous is if you gave Burrow time, you were dead. If they gave Burrow time, the defense was dead. If yeah. there was a pass rush, Burrow escaped, and the defense was dead. Like, it didn't matter. They beat you both ways. And so they also gave up 35 sacks. And, again, I want to get into this with the quarterbacks. you got to be willing to give up a sack to be a big play quarterback. Joe Burrow pushes it, man. He is not afraid to hang in. He is not afraid to get outside the pocket and not get rid of the ball and look and look and look and try to make a play. They gave up sacks. I was not impressed in the run game. They do not have – they did not have the ability to line up and knock people over and make lanes for – for Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I, I came away more impressed by Edwards-Alaire yes. than mm-hmm. I did the offensive line. I mean, this. so, okay, they won this award, and we talked about this a few it's weeks fake. ago. We talked about this a few weeks ago that what the awards can sometimes mean. And I'm not saying, again, I think they were a very solid offensive line, but Pro Football Focus ranked them 30th. So not even a top 25 offensive line as far as their metrics, which you know people cite a lot because I think there are people who study this and, and put some real thought into it. So that tells me again. It, that's where that's what, kind of where that comparison came back to me, comparing it to Ohio State's linebackers. Really solid guys. They're they're certainly not the reason why they're not capsizing a season. In fact, they're even better than that. I mean, they're 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 very solid. They're getting their job done, but not special. I didn't think that was a special offensive line that I watched last year for LSU. They ran the ball effectively because the passing game was so scary. Defenses were defending pass first, and they ran the ball effectively because Edwards Alaire is a shifty little dude. He yeah, is again, go back to the stat to I already out. read. Yeah, go back to the stat I already read about how much how much the RPOs kind of goose their running game last year. Um, I, I think that it, now you have as, as Stephen pointed out earlier, you have to have an offensive line that's comfortable with those RPO situations, which maybe Ohio State didn't have in 2018. But again, as smart as Ohio State's offensive lineman, that's a little, that's another reason why I think that that's a, an area or a way, a trend that, that the Ohio State offense could see, because I think this offensive line could probably adapt pretty well to that. I thought there was very little power to the LSU offense. They did not line up and knock you over. Ohio State will line up and knock you over. And as much as we talked earlier about they've got to be dangerous in the pass game because they don't have J.K. Dobbins, they still have a dangerous offensive line. And they will. They are going to line up and knock people over in 2020. That offensive line is going to want to run block. They're going to want to get physical. You have to let them eat a little bit. You can't just have them standing back there pass blocking all day. Josh Myers and Wyatt Davis are going to want to bowl some guys over. And they're going to have a much greater ability to do that. So I thought that was not a well-rounded LSU offense last year. I think, you know, Clyde Edwards Alaire is a well-rounded back because he can catch it and run it, but they lean so heavy on the run. Um, I mean, so heavy on the pass. And we know that, but even without JK Dobbins, Ohio state is going to be still be more dangerous of a power run threat than what LSU was a quick comparison 
2019, Ohio State 2019, Ohio State 2018. LSU, 48.4 points a game. 19, Ohio State, 46.9. 18, Ohio State, 42.4. So LSU, about 1.5 points more last year than Ohio State. Yards per game, LSU, 568. 18, Ohio State, 536. 19, Ohio State, 530. So 38 more yards per game, LSU, last year than Ohio State. Passing yards per game, LSU, 401. 18, Ohio State, 364. 19, Ohio State, 263. That's the big jump we're asking, right? 138 more passing yards per game, LSU, compared to Ohio State last year. Rushing yards per game, 19, Ohio State, 267. 18, Ohio State, 171. 19, LSU, 167. So Ohio State, 100 more rushing yards per game last year than LSU. LSU really, I mean, it's the comparison to the Ohio State offensive 18 is, is really there statistically. Um, how much better, Stephen, you think that it's clear the Ohio State offensive line is better. How much? Like, 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 much? Like much? Or much? How much better is the Ohio State offensive line in 2020 than LSU? L- LSU's. Any impact that LSU had in the run game in 2019 was because of his pass game and because of what Hilaire was, Edwards Hilaire was able to do on his own. I think if Trey Sermon or Master Teague has 1,400 rushing yards, we're going to be giving about 75% of that credit to the offensive line. I don't think you can say the same thing about LSU in 2019. And Alabama got after him, man. I mean, that's Alabama. But, I mean, yeah. like Alabama was in Joe Burrow's face a lot of that game. So, um, okay. I want to double back on something that I said we were going to dig into, and then I moved away before we dug in on it. Tight end usage. Steven, oh, what did you – Thaddeus Moss. Thaddeus Moss for LSU. He's our starting tight end. He's Randy Moss's kid. Uh, he had 47 catches for 570 yards last year, 12.1 yards per catch. Describe the difference between – Thaddeus Moss in the LSU offense and Ohio State tight ends in their offense. Yeah, if Jeremy Rucker was watching Thaddeus, if he if Jeremy Rucker listened to this podcast and is trying to compare how he might fit into Ohio State if they're anywhere near this, don't watch Thaddeus Moss because you're not going to get the ball 47 times. Now, the three touchdowns, that's possible. He had, Jeremy Rucker had four touchdowns last year, and I think two of them came in one game. But – Ohio State's not going to use their tight ends this often as much as LSU did in 2019. We can sit here and come into fall camp every year and discuss, oh, my God, are they going to use the tight ends more? They can come out with 12 personnel sets and have the first two games, see the tight ends have an an upwards in usage, but that's not going to happen. Rutgers probably going to have anywhere from 12 to 15, maybe 17 catches in 2020. It'll, you know, maybe three touchdowns just because some of his cut touches come in the red zone. But if he's th- if anybody thinks that Jeremy Rucker, even as a guy who was a top 100 recruit, is going to be anywhere near what Thaddeus Moss had for LSU, then you just need to stop having that thought process right now because it's not happening. 
Nathan, when you watched Thaddeus Moss and the way LSU used him, did you think to yourself that's what Ohio State should do with their tight ends? Or is it just a philosophical difference? Ohio State certainly asks its tight ends to block a thousand times more than Thaddeus Moss was asked to block last year. We just talked about how Ohio State has much more of a power run game. Is it just a philosophical choice, or should Ohio State steal something from LSU and the way they use their tight end in the pass game? Well, I want, I want to back up for just a second because the other wrinkle here is – I guess I don't. I give some benefit of the doubt to a coaching staff that if they feel like they have a guy who would they could would who they should use in that role, they would use him in that role. Like I, I guess I don't see Ryan Day looking at Jeremy Ruckert and saying or Luke Farrell and saying, "Man, that guy would be that guy's a great receiving tight end." I I wish I wanted to use him. Like I feel like he would just use him if that's what they wanted to do. I, I, so the other wrinkle here is um, I don't agree really with good. that. I, I don't. I think we've seen enough history here that I think there is a philosophical thing. They have, they've had talent over the years. We've talked about it a million times. I, I think it's a schematic thing. I, I, don't, I don't know that Thaddeus Moss is doing things is, is so much different than like Jeremy Ruckert. I think they might be the same player. I think, I think Rucker could do exactly what Thaddeus Moss did for LSU if Ohio State used their tight ends that way. And they choose not to. They choose yeah. not to. Thaddeus Moss, they, I, I, I don't have the stats on it. I don't know if anyone does. They never line their tight end up as a tight end. He just lines up as a receiver. He yeah. never has his hand on the ground as a sixth offensive lineman. Ohio State has that all the time. Thaddeus Moss is always standing up. He's split out wide. He's not even in the slot. He's like out wide part of the time. It's a completely different job description, and it's a choice. I don't know that it means that LSU, LSU's choice is better, but I, I would – I don't. I don't think Ryan there is. I don't think Ryan Day is there philosophically, and schematically. But I think if he wanted to be, I think Ruckert could do it tomorrow. But I think there's also, as we talked about before, there was a, a, a fundamental difference in the way that those offenses approached the game last year. Right? You had an offense from Ohio State that was a run-first offense. You had a an offense for LSU that was not. So as that starts to migrate more towards the LSU model, as we're kind of saying here, that it probably has to, just based on personnel for 2020. I mean, I think that, I think we've already kind of answered this before, because I think all along we've assumed the more that Ohio State throws the ball, I think there's going to be more opportunities for the tight ends. Now, do I think that it necessarily happens um, to some huge degree? I think it just happens in the same proportion that the rest of the offense gets more targets. So the issue is... LSU, for as much as we said their offensive line was average, they just they blocked with five constantly. Yeah, and said, "Come get us." And like Oklahoma, I mean Oklahoma High, um, Oklahoma Central Oklahoma High School rushed three and dropped eight, and so they were blocking three with five all day. And then those poor 10th graders had no chance covering the LSU receivers. So I don't know what Alex Grinch was doing, um, but Oklahoma high school's philosophy didn't work at all, but they didn't come and blitz and get after it. Alabama got after him a little bit, right? And said, we're going to, you know, they will have some blitzers. We'll also have some defensive linemen who were really dangerous. We'll bring up a linebacker, but they just left five guys in. They didn't need expert extra protection. I am I, it made me interested in a philosophical idea of we've got a really good offensive line. We have complete faith in a quarterback who can read a defense, has vision, 
can anticipate what a defense is doing, is in sync with his offensive line in terms of uh, making the right protection calls, can get rid of the ball quickly if need be, because Burrow gets the ball out of there in a nanosecond if he needs it. Um, there's a play I want to talk about when we talk about running backs. And can escape if somebody does come through. So let's go turn the tight end into a fourth receiver, because here is the difference. My The overall thing is when you had – Edwards, Allaire, and Moss split out wide, and you're att- you have those five guys. And that's who they play. They just played those five. And when they had Chase, Jefferson, Marshall, Edwards, Allaire, and Moss split out wide, all five of them were threats every snap to catch a ball and do something with it. When Ohio State goes five wide, they are not at all threatening in the same way. And they cannot be as threatening as an offense – if their tight end and running back don't catch the ball. That is what's going to hold them back from really being like LSU. If you believe Ohio State can't run the ball as dangerously as it has in the past, it has to be more dangerous passing it. It's not just about throwing it to the receivers. It has to be that you have five threats every snap, and they're not there. More by choice, I think, than by talent, but they're not there. Because when Luke Farrell or Jeremy Ruckert does go line up five wide, they never they never throw it to them. Mm. A defense, the guy over that tight end is not back on his heels thinking, well, I better be ready for this. So uh, that is going to hold them back. And Stephen, you were you were right on this from the start. Do you think it's possible that we see that, or is it just that's not where Ryan Day is? Ryan Day is a great offensive play caller. The way he does it. And if you're the if the the what the thing that I want is five dangerous pass catching threats on every snap, I'm blowing in the wind. Go ahead and want it. That's just not going to be the reality. I think the best case scenario is Jeremy Rucker has 20 receptions like Luke Farrell did in 2018 when they were more of a pass catching. But that's philosophical, right? That's yeah, that's all philosophical. Not ability. Not ability. If it was ability, it would be way north of that. But because of because of how they approach things, that should be that's going to be the reality for Jeremy Rucker. Here's a question: Do we? Is there any chance that having someone like Garrett Wilson in the slot and as dynamic as he is, by correlation, opens up more opportunities for the tight end, or or, or lets Ryan Day think there's more he can do with the tight end in the passing offense? I mean, Ohio State has dyna- – you know, I, they just – they've had dynamic dudes. Like, they, they, there's always talent at Ohio State. It is very seldom and, – and, again, you, we've all – you've made good points, Nate. You know, Austin Mack and Ben Victor was not as dangerous last year. So, you know, um, it's just what they – it's just what you choose to do. And I just feel like they just don't view their tight ends that same way. They don't want Jeremy Ruckert standing up split wide 80% of the snaps. They want them involved in the run game. They want them – um, and they just view them differently. And I, I don't know what would what would change their mind on that. So I don't – I mean, Wilson's awesome. Paris Campbell and K.J. Hill caught 160 passes in 2018. They still don't throw the ball to tight end. You know, like I – so well, I, don't, I don't know. Right, but, but, but well, I guess more to the point of what I was saying, and, and I, wasn't, I didn't see 2018, but it, for 2019, we've already talked about the, the difference between the kind of receiver K.J. Hill is and the kind of receiver Garrett Wilson is. So I'm just saying that if, if there's something more that you can get out of the slot and you're playing off of that with the tight end, 
does that open up? Does it make does it, give, you it feel like you can that, give it more freedom? Are you asking that because the slot is going to be a downfield threat this year, it opens up some things over the middle for a tight end? Yeah, potentially. I, I'm, I'm theorizing that potentially it does. But I think it gets back to – I do agree with what Doug is saying, that at the end of the day, this does come back to the decision that Ryan Day is saying and, and or the re- decision Ryan Day is making of what he wants his offense to be. Um, I guess I'm still being newer to it, not having seen as much of it. My inclination, like I said, is to give some benefit of the doubt and say – you you use the best guys in the best way. Um, it may be pos- It may be true though that this is just part of his baseline as an offensive play caller that he sees the tight end as a completely um, complementary piece that is never a first resort. And and if that that's fine, and I agree with that. And we said Ohio State has a better run game than LSU. But if Ohio State doesn't open its mind to a little bit of the LSU thinking, it's just not, it's not going to be able to be as dangerous in the pass game. Because in the end, Thaddeus Moss wasn't dangerous because he was playing off Jamar Chase or because Justin Jefferson was was running this route. Or, he was just dangerous because he was dangerous. And Clyde Edwards-Alaire mm-hmm. was just dangerous because he was dangerous. Because he was good at catching the ball and his team knew it and they used him that way. And I did a stat calculation of, I just looked at the dudes who mattered. So I, I tallied up the receptions for the guys who actually mattered. If you just were some guy who had six catches and most of it was probably in garbage time and you were a backup, I didn't count it. So I just looked at the guys that actually were involved with the first team offense. And I figured out the percentage of how much they were thrown to. So I'm not explaining this very well. LSU last season. So when I added this up, I just added up the three receivers, Moss and Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And I added up how many total catches they had, and then what was the position reliance on those guys. The receivers had 69. As much as they threw it, the receivers had 69% of the catches. The running backs, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, had 16% of the catches. The tight end, Thaddeus Moss, had 14% of the catches. So the tight end and running back combined had 30% of the catches that mattered, okay? Ohio State in 2019, the running back and tight end had 19% of the catches that mattered. And Ohio State in 2018, the running back and tight end had 21% of the catches that mattered. So this is percent. LSU threw the ball a lot more. They had a lot more catches overall. So when you look at Clyde Edwards-Alaire and he has 55 catches, it's like, well, they had a lot more receptions overall. Thaddeus Moss has 47 catches. But they, one-third of their passing offense was to people other than their NFL-level receivers. Ohio State's around 20%. LSU's around 30%. That's a big difference. And I don't know that that's going to change. And if it doesn't change then you're not going to reach the LSU danger level of passing because you're not going to have five threats every play. And when you involve the running back and the tight end that much, they are threats every snap, and it changes how a defense has to deal with you. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back and do running back and quarterback and then probably some some fast food. I mean, if I'm going to keep talking about the fast food, I, I guess I talked about it before. I don't want to tease it and not do it. So we have to do it. It might be super long. But we're going to break down 
the LSU run game last year with, with Clyde Edwards, Alaire, and what Ohio State running backs might do this year. And then we'll get into the thing you really want to know, Joe Burrow versus Justin Fields. That's next on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk, running back. Nathan, you said you came away more impressed with Clyde Edwards, Alaire than the LSU offensive line. How does that affect your view of, of what you think the Ohio State running game can be or needs to be in 2020 compared to what LSU did last year? Well, as I like I said before, as I watched LSU, I, I tried to kind of just imagine: Would you could you slip J.K. Dobbins in there and get essentially the same <laughs> result? And I thought almost, it, yeah, you could. I thought they were pretty equal talents. So it, it, it's the same. You know, <laughs> Ohio State doesn't have a J.K. Dobbins the same way it doesn't have a, a Claude Edwards-Hilaire either. Like it's got to find some other way to produce the running game. Kind of building off of our last discussion though where we're talking about the, the tight ends and using other positions in the passing game I think the 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 caveat to that is that with the offensive line that Ohio State has that can go out and do some of the things that LSU didn't or couldn't do last year as far as really kind of being physical and and nasty and going out and setting a tone with how it it it, it, it lays the foundation for a running game that may be where those yards come from as opposed to coming from the running backs and receivers in the passing game. And I don't, I think that balance can be just as crucial as if you were incorporating those positions more, but I think that's where I, I think it's on this offensive line to go out and, and make this running game happen next season until we see that Trey Sermon is both truly fully healthy and um, able to be consistently dynamic and, and go out there and perform on a down to down basis. So I think the important caveat here is, again, we have had conversations on this podcast. We had conversations with our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315, months ago, where when we were talking about Master Teague, some of the tech subscribers were saying, well, Master Teague doesn't have to be great. He can just be like Clyde Edwards-Alaire. So like when you say that you think Edwards-Alaire and J.K. Dobbins are equal or in the same realm, it's like, Okay, so he's as good as Ohio State's awesome running back last year. There's no way Ohio State's running back in 2020 is going to be as good. I think there is some possible fundamental misunderstanding among some people of how good that guy was and how important he was. And and if you, again, want an offense to operate at the level that LSU operated at last year, they had it all in the passing game. And they had a dude at running back. So we're talking about whether Ohio State can have it all in the passing game and then saying, like, can they have a dude at running back? Steven, what did you come away thinking about Edwards Alaire and an Ohio State comparison? Yeah, I think to the point that you, you alluded at earlier when we were talking about, you know, having the five threats on the field in the passing game, I don't know who Ohio State's best pass catcher is in the running back room. And it might be Demario McCall, who has been shifting back and forth between that room and the wide receiver room his entire career there. But Demario McCall is also not their best between the tackles guy. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was both for LSU. He was their best guy in between the tackles, but he was also their best pass catcher in that room as well. And that's why he fit that offense so perfectly. And ironically enough, the offense that he's going to in the NFL is, is the best possible offense he could go to. It's the same concept as it is in LSU, where he's going to be a pass catcher first. And in between the tackles, guy second. So I don't know if Ohio State has that in, in 2020. 
a guy who can who is the best of both worlds. Again, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, Edwards Alaire had 215 carries last year. Travis Etienne from Clemson had 207. J.K. Dobbins had 301. Um, it's tough, man. That guy's good. He's shifty. He gets yards on his own because the, 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 the line is not blowing holes open, but that guy is shifty and has a burst. He is a great threat in the pass game. And both LSU and Clemson had running backs last year where the running backs were complementary pieces, but not because of a lack of ability, but because of a schematic choice and how those offenses wanted to attack. Ohio State had a primary piece at running back. Ohio State now is going to have a complementary piece at running back, but I don't think we can assume that Ohio State's complementary running back is going to be at the same level as Clyde Edwards-Alaire and Travis Etienne. So, like, if that's a comparison that you've been making or thinking about for 2020 for Ohio State, I think it's wrong. I think I think you can't count on that. And so I think I think that might be perhaps the most glaring difference. Like, you know, we talked about earlier, what's closer – you know, I believe in the ability of Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson to mimic Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, who were monsters, more than I believe in the ability of an Ohio State running back to mimic what Clyde Edwards-Alaire did. And I wanted to make this point. I think it's possible, and again, it's, it's about Ohio State 2020, not Ohio State 2019. Um, I think of Ohio State, and this isn't fair, because Clyde Edwards-Alaire is not the downhill back that J.K. Dobbins was. But I think if you want to spin it this way, unfairly, if Ohio State had Clyde Edwards-Alaire – in 2019, I think maybe Ohio State wins the national championship. And I think if LSU had J.K. Dobbins, I think maybe they lose to Alabama. And it's only based on this. It's based on one play. But it's a reminder of how different – yes, J.K. Dobbins has shown, shown some pass-catching ability. J.K. Dobbins had a chance to make two plays in the pass game against Clemson that he didn't make. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, there was a third down play against Alabama where a blitzer came free up the middle. LSU, I think, was up by five or six at that point in the fourth quarter. If they get stopped on this third down, they're going to have to punt. Alabama's going to take over, and Alabama has momentum. Joe Burrow reads a blitzer up the middle, comes unblocked, gets rid of the ball in half a second on a dump off to Clyde Edwards-Alaire, who catches the back of the football seven yards short of the first down, turns up field, runs into a tackler, carries an Alabama defender five yards and gets the first down. It's an unbelievable catch. It's an unbelievable physical run after the catch. And it picked up a first down that saved LSU's season. And J.K. Dobbins had a chance to make a couple big-time catches against Clemson. He didn't make it. Now, J.K. Dobbins is awesome. I'm not going to apologize for criticizing him here because I talked about how awesome he is. Man, like – my belief of what I think the Ohio State running backs are in 2020 is so far from a guy who's going to make an unbelievable catch on third and 10 and then get seven yards on his own running through an Alabama defender. They don't win the national title last year without Clyde Edwards-Alaire. That's how good that guy was. And I think it's perhaps the thing that Ohio State fans have the most skewed view on when they think of this comparison. I don't know if you, I did, I did, I sort of remembered seeing a highlight of that play in retrospect, but then when I rewatched that Alabama LSU game, the guy, the guy is just impressive. Again, Nathan, you already said this. The guy is just an impressive football player. Yeah. I mean, I, I was familiar maybe with some of the more, for lack of a better term, finesse 
talent that he had. I mean, as far as being a receiver out of the backfield and things like that, what I think I, I didn't fully realize until I went back and, and studied a little more closely was the success that he has running inside, you know, kind of going to Steven's point. I know he's not a downhill runner the way that JK Dobbins was, but as we already talked about, this wasn't an offensive line that was going out and just steamrolling people the way that some of Ohio state's interior offensive line guys were last year. And they saw a lot of success running, Edward Zolaire on, you know, inside zone stuff, um, stuff off the center, off the guards. And um, that is kind of interesting to me is I think that's where Ohio State could maybe get some of its best running production this year, just because that's where they have some really talented personnel. But a lot of it came from Claude, Clyde Edward Zolaire. A lot of it was coming from, um, you know, he was running well off contact. He, he, I don't know. That he, he, I don't. I wouldn't say he's as physical as Dobbins, but he also, um, he also, you know, uh, uh, dish it out pretty well too. So um, it's it, it, just a complete back, I guess, maybe to, to, to kind of just reiterate Steven's point. I watched this guy and I thought that is a complete back. That is a guy. I understand why he's going at the bottom of the first round of the NFL draft. I mean, that's, that's legit. I don't see that on Ohio state's roster right now. And that is a big question to ask answer for 2020. I think it was the Oklahoma game. Um, Oklahoma high might've been Oklahoma middle school uh, that I th- they had a play where they had five wide and they motioned Edward Jalair back into the backfield. And then they ran a route and he like smoked the linebacker and caught like a 20 yard touchdown pass from Joe Burrow. Do you guys remember that one from the mm-hmm. Oklahoma game? Just like God, like they had no chance on that. Um, all right. The guy's good. I think it's the, I think of the five areas of comparison. It's, it's the one where it's going to be toughest for Ohio state to match LSU from last year. Let's get to the QBs. Steven Means. Can Justin Fields in 2020 be as good as Joe Burrow in 2019? Uh, well, as the guy who already wrote what's more likely him, lead, I'm, 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 I, I think so. I think I think J- J- Justin Fields can be as good as Joe Burrow was in, in, in 2019. And it's not about – it's not – I'm not even – it's not statistical. 60 mm-hmm. touchdowns is a lot. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes. But so right. st- stats are one thing, but watching Joe Burrow play. Yeah. Making plays, leading an offense, making decisions, making accurate throws. Can Justin Fields do that? I think he can do that. He's already shown to have the ability to do, do that in 2019. It's just about adding more things to his game. It's things we've already talked about. So, having those over-the-middle throws and the mesh routes and things like that. But he's already shown that he has this, the talent and the skill set to get there in year two. Let's just remember, Joe Burrow wasn't that – the, the jump he made from year one to year two is ridiculous. Justin Fields is not going to have to make that much of a ridiculous jump to get to that level because he's already a Heisman finalist in year one as a starting quarterback. Do you think it's a fair expectation – for Justin Fields, Nathan. It's not like, oh, I don't mean it like, oh, he wasn't as good as Joe Burrow. Justin Fields failed in 2020. Not that, but that like if Ohio State fans are thinking about this season and thinking, I think Joe, Justin Fields can have a Burrow-esque season, which is what I believe my team needs for Ohio State to win a national championship. Is that a reasonable belief? Well, do I think Justin Fields can win a national championship in 2020? Yeah. No, and that that's not be- the question. The question is, can he play like Joe Burrow? Well, what do you mean, but can he play like Joe Burrow? Can he have a statistical season? No, like not stats. When you watch Joe Burrow play, we just watched Joe Burrow play for however many games we watched. The way he played, how dangerous he was, the reads he made, the decisions he made, the throws he made, what he did to an opposing defense. Can Justin Fields be at that level snap to snap? 
Yes, I think he can, but as we've talked about for the first hour and whatever of this podcast, some of it comes down to the approach of the offense, the approach of the play caller. Are they going to give him the opportunity to do some of the things that Joe Burrow did last season? Are they going to let him be attacked vertically the way Joe Burrow did last season? Are they going to utilize as many weapons as Joe Burrow did last season? There is some nuance here because it is there. there are some things that Joe Burrow did last year because LSU – gave him that opportunity now now it may also be that Justin Fields is coming into an offense for the first time and only been there a few months was still really growing into it over the course of a season um and he may just have more at his disposal in terms of knowledge in terms of experience in terms of feel in terms of his familiarity with the guys because Burrow was in his second full year with the program but that that is the question also is not just talent but also opportunity and how they approach running their offense I think Ohio State can do things the exact same way they did in 2019. Obviously, with throwing the ball more, but using the weapons the exact same way, and you know, still. 2019 or 2018? 2019. You think Ohio State? No, 2018. I'm sorry. Yeah, 2018. I think they can do the exact same thing they did in 2018, and just Justin Fields will be just as good as Joe Burrow was in 2019 and 2020. Okay. The comparison, to be clear, the comparison you are making to is to the Dwayne Haskins passing offense of 2018. Yes. Okay. I think Justin Fields can be more dangerous than that because that was a lot of over-the-middle, shorter stuff with Paris and KJ, 160 catches that year. I think Justin Fields has the receivers and the ability to tack down the field more. Um, Joe Burrow was really good under pressure. I thought he got – as I said before, he was really dangerous when he got rushed and got out and looked downfield um, and made plays. He had a play um, where – I wrote it down, but then I forgot which game it was. He he escaped pressure and did not set his feet and threw the ball 40 yards down the field into double coverage, and Jamar Chase jumped up and caught a touchdown. Um, I think it was Alabama. might have been the first touchdown against Alabama. He didn't even try to set his feet. He was just like, the heck with it. He had a Slank. similar one against Texas to, in that – you know third and 17 game sealer to Justin Jefferson, where he basically just kind of flung, flung it over to him, jumping over the, the line of scrimmage, and Jefferson takes it for a touchdown. Joe Burrow played with zero given, zero given last year. He just let it rip. And Justin Fields certainly at times let it rip. That scramble where he threw to Garrett Wilson in the Michigan game, right? Right after he got hurt? No, right? Wait, is that the one? Right? Yes, yeah, his first play back on the field. Like, there are, there are times when you can see Justin Fields do it. The thing I really want the most is I want Justin Fields to let it rip. They both took 35 sacks. Joe Burrow was not afraid to take a sack. I talked about it a lot last year. Ryan Day loves it when Justin Fields just throws it away. I don't think that's where it's going to be in 2020. That's not where it's at. You've got to let Justin Fields make mistakes. Joe Burrow, I think one of the sequences I'm talking about, he had a he had a play where he nearly got picked. He made a terrible read. I think it was against Oklahoma. He made a terrible read, nearly got picked, and on the next play threw a touchdown pass. And it was like he didn't care. So I really want Justin Fields to not care in 2020. And I do think it will be a challenge a little bit for him to be as constantly dangerous under pressure as Burrow was because I do think he will have time to pass a lot of the time because we've talked about we think the offensive line is better. He's got to throw some 50-50 balls and give his receivers a chance to make plays. He's got to take some risks down the field. Um, and here, I think, is the separator. 
Joe Burrow last year ran it 115 times for 368 yards. And sacks factor in or whatever, but 115 for 368. Justin Fields ran it 137 times for 484 yards. So 116 more yards, 22 more carries, but not a huge difference, right? And we know Justin Fields didn't play in second halves, but Joe Burrow got taken out too. Um, and it's why I wanted to watch Penn State. <clears throat> I'm not as interested even in, in Justin Fields and the zone read. I'm still interested in that. But there are a couple plays against Penn State where Justin Fields just killed him with his legs, scrambling. And that's where he can be the most different compared to Joe Burrow. That Joe Burrow had some really important runs in some games. He did it to Alabama a few times. He's a better runner than people think. He's physical. He's pretty fast. He gets north and south really quickly. But he's not Justin Fields. And so if Justin Fields is going to play at a Joe Burrow level, I think it's going to be that that Justin Fields is, I don't know, 85 or 90% as effective as Joe Burrow was throwing the ball, but he's much more dangerous running it, particularly on scrambles. When you watch Joe Burrow, Nathan, and you think about Justin Fields as a runner, how much, how much of a difference, how much should Ohio State lean on that? And, and, and how much better and more dangerous can Fields be in that part of the game? Well, kind of, I think you're saying, I, I, I feel Justin Fields is most dangerous as a runner outside of structure. Like outside, you know, he's flush from the pocket, something goes wrong, it's the second option, he sees an opportunity, and then he takes it. Because then you've got a defense that's on its heels, they're turned backwards, they're having to react to now this dynamic player heading upfield, and they're out of position, that's where I think he can really do a lot of damage. I think he can obviously do that more than Joe Burrow can. I was, I did catch my eye a little bit, some of the things that Joe Burrow was able to do as a runner, but not in, in, in that kind of ceiling of, of dynamic player. I think it was more just, you know, being effect, effectively being able to pick his spots. I think Justin Fields can be a much more dangerous weapon. I just also feel, though, that, that Fields is such a, a dangerous passer and has so much passing talent that I think it, it, it's, you have to be careful not to um, take that option off of the field very often. I, I mean, I think you have to really pick your spots as far as calling a design run for him. In, in open field situations, when you get down around the goal line, uh, as we've talked about before, now you start talking about some zone read things and things that become much more interesting. But in, in an open field, I really want his arm doing the majority of attacking, at least as the first option, and then playing off of that with his athletic ability. LSU put Alabama away with a third down Joe Burrow QB draw. Um, they had a great play in one of the games where Burrow – faked the QB draw and then threw deep to chase and the defense had no idea. I think it was Oklahoma. I think it was Oklahoma elementary school. That one. Um, they had no idea what was coming. Um, Burrow was enough of a threat in the run game to make plays when needed. But I understand what, what you're saying is. And I agree with that. I just, and I, and I do wonder how much they're going to lean on him in the zone read, but, but Steven, I really am interested in Justin Fields. Um, keeping his eyes downfield, but when he senses it and feels it and sees it, really being being willing to take off and run. Because, again, I, I wanted to make sure I did not watch 
Michigan or the Big Ten championship game or Clemson because that was not 100% Justin Fields. And it was a reminder, my gosh, this guy is so – he is such a good passer and we know it, but holy moly, he is kind of next level in the open field run game. How do you think they should – how do you think Justin Fields should approach that in his decision-making of when to take off in 2020? I think if he sees an opportunity, you know, to make a play, then he should do just that. If I'm not mistaken, the Nebraska game, he did that, and he wouldn't got a touchdown out of it. And so I think it'll be a similar situation to that this year where I agree with you, Nathan. I think in the red zone, there will be more design run opportunities for him. But outside of that, it's going to be there's nothing down the field. I did every, I went through my reads. I did everything I needed to do, and there was nobody open. Now I'm going to use my legs. And, yes, he should still look to get down as quickly as possible to get out of bounds. But if he sees an opportunity on a third and seven to keep a drive alive and there's nothing open downfield, he can get 12 or 13 yards with his legs, he'll do that. And he's shown in the past last season that he's willing to do that. But I think he needs to be willing to do it more. I think that the more you are threatening a defense constantly, like I might take off, I might take off, I might take off, it opens stuff up in the pass game too. And as much as he wants to look downfield and have the opportunity to make big plays, I I think he can absolutely kill defenses if he takes off if, if he just lets it go and maybe not read, not open, read, not open, read, not open, run. Every now and then it might be like, read, not open, go. And I'd be totally in favor of that. But I think that also comes with just having more opportunities to throw the ball. He only threw it 25 times a game last year while Joe Burrow threw it 35 times a game. So Justin is throwing it north of 30 times a game next in 2020. There's just more opportunity to do exactly that where he can just go, I read my first two options, which are Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson in whatever order, depending on the play call. And now I'm gone. It's more, it's just going to be more opportunities for him to do that because he's dropping back a lot more often. All right. So let's, let's wrap this part of the podcast up. Um, let's go through with the final analysis of the five ways we broke it down. And we'll just say not, well, should we say whether we think Ohio State can be better or whether, Ohio, whether we just think, yes, they will be better or no, they won't be better? Yeah, let's, let's put – it's Market Down. It's uh, Market Down Wednesday. We'll put a fine point on it. Your choices for Ohio State in the five areas are will be better at this than LSU in 2019, will be worse than LSU in 2019, or will be about the same. But it's not do they have the potential. It's that in the end, will they be or not? So play calling, the way they use – their personnel. It doesn't mean it's the same play calling. It means that the effect the play calling has on the offense. Nathan, will Ohio State 2020 be better, worse, or about the same as LSU in 2019? I guess I would lean worse, but worse in quotation marks. I don't know how to quantify that, but I just, until I see them open it up a little bit more, I have to assume that it'll still look a little bit more like last year. Steven? I think it'll be about the same. I would I would lean a little bit worse just because I don't know if Ryan Day will push it as much because they have such a talent edge. LSU had a really tough schedule last year. Ohio State's still going to have such a talent edge so often. It's like, well, why do we have to be like fancy schematically? And and again, we've seen Ryan Day. Those mesh routes and stuff, they really were confusing defenses at times. I think it's almost Ryan Day's choice. I think he has the ability that Joe Brady has to 
to scheme up stuff that it's like the scheme is getting guys open. I just don't know if I feel like he has to. So I think I'm going to lean a little bit worse, but but not by much. Um, receivers, Ohio State, better, about the same, or worse than LSU 19. Steven first. Receivers and tight end combined, even though I forgot about the tight end yeah. when we broke it down. I think because we're including the tight end into this, it has to be worse. Because obviously, Olave and Garrett Wilson can be the Ohio State's version of what Justin Jefferson and, and Jamar Chase were for LSU, but Ohio State doesn't use its tight ends. LSU did, so because of that, it has to be worse. Nathan, it, it's worse, and I, I don't. We can talk all day about them being the version of Jefferson and Chase, but they're not Jefferson and Chase. I don't. I don't <laughs> see that yet. Um, it's I, you'd have to vote worse. I would say a little worse, but it's closer than I thought. So I will say that, that it's like the expectation of like, well, they're not Jefferson and Chase. Uh, yeah, I, I, they could really be in the ballpark, I think. But but the, the, the Moss is the deciding factor. So I'll say a little worse. Offensive line, Nathan. Better. Steven. Better. Ohio State has two guys who are going to be – who might be consistent All-Americans and you know, around. And then a third-year third starter coming back in there a month. But... I thought the LSU – Offensive line was perceived as good because of all the other things, because their quarterback was good, their receivers were good, their running back was good, and their play calling was good. And so people thought the offensive line was good. And I think it's going to be the reverse with Ohio State. I think the offensive line is good, and the offensive line will then help everything be even better. So I think it's a clear better. I, I, um, I'd probably use the word great instead of good. Like I think LSU's offensive line last year was good. I just don't know if it was great. I think Ohio State's offensive line will be great. Semantic argument. Semantic I agree. Argument. Yep, I agree. Running back, Nathan. Worse. Steven. Worse. Yeah, I think it's the biggest gap. I think if you if we think, well, the play calling might not quite be as good, and the receivers, well, it's really hard to be chasing Jefferson. I think it's the biggest gap between what LSU had last year and what Ohio State's going to have in, in 2020. So – I would say worse. Quarterback, Steven. Better, I think. Ooh, better Jeez. than the best. Better than the best quarterback season in college football history. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, statistically. I mean, what Joe Burrow did was ridiculous. But just looking at, just watching the game itself, there was nothing Joe Burrow did out there. Just from a strictly just playing football standpoint, Justin Fields can't do. While Justin Fields, we I think we all can agree, is a bigger run threat than Joe Burrow is. Nathan, I think saying about the same is a pretty big compliment. So I'm going to say about the same. I would say I think, I mean, from like a football play, make a throw, make a run, all that kind of stuff. I agree. There's nothing that Burrow did that Fields can't do, and there are some things that Fields can do better. Um, I felt like Joe Burrow was in complete control the whole time, every snap. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. The RPO stuff is really dangerous. And LSU, again, LSU played some really tough teams last year. They played Texas. They played Florida, Auburn, Alabama, Oklahoma, kindergarten, um, Clemson. I mean, like Joe Burrow got tested a lot. Justin Fields killed the Big Ten. Killed him. Killed him. Just ridiculous how good Justin Fields was. Against Clemson. He was really good. I didn't feel like he was complete in complete control every snap as much with that step up while he was hurt. So 
it's a high bar, I think, for a quarterback to have the kind of mastery that Burrow showed last year. I think Fields has it in him. I don't think we've seen it yet, but Stephen, have you said it? You said a bunch of times, and it's 100% correct. Burrow didn't have it in his first year either. So Burrow made a gigantic leap. I mean, if you compare Burrow's first year as a starter to Fields' first year as a starter, it's not close. Justin Fields, as a first-year starter, smokes Joe Burrow as a first-year starter. And then Burrow made a huge leap with a coordinator change. Um, if Fields makes the same kind of leap that Burrow made, Fields is going to have He'll the best, the, the best season him. in college football history. That's the standard. I mean, because he's so far ahead right now after year one. But then as a result, you know, he's not going to have a new coordinator. It's about more mastery in the system. You know, he doesn't have as much that you can leap. But I will, I'm not going to say better just because Burrow did so many things right. And when you look at the – we didn't get into the nitty-gritty of the chart breakdowns and stuff. He's the most accurate passer college football has ever seen. But Justin Fields is really accurate also. Like Justin Fields puts the ball on guys' hands constantly. So I think the ability is there. I'll say even. But I don't think it's impossible that he could be a little better. Now – Again, if we say, well, he doesn't quite have the running back, he doesn't quite have the receivers, he doesn't quite have five dangerous pass catchers every play, that factors in. So um, that is, But to Nathan, to your point, the idea that we are looking at what Joe Burrow did and, and saying that Justin Fields could be in that range is the highest compliment you can give anybody. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we, we wrap this up and now we're kind of saying worse, worse, worse. And it sounds like we're being like dismissive or critical, but really all we're saying is no, Ohio State's 2020 offense will not surpass LSU 2019 as the greatest in the history of college football. That's essentially the conclusion. And I don't know that statistically they're going to get there. Um, just because it just felt like LSU had it. It's, did you guys notice LSU is like tempo constantly? They're just up-tempo all the time. Mm-hmm. It's tempo, and, and, and as we've talked about, to some extent, I, I feel like the the competition can push you to higher achievements sometimes. I mean, yeah, you're facing some tougher defenses, but Joe, you know, Joe Burrow's playing deeper into some games, um, and I don't know if, if Ohio State's going to have the opportunity to push it for four quarters very often. Which might be the, the, the thing here. It's just to throw 2018 back in, even with Dwayne Haskins, he had to do that or they weren't going to win football games. LSU played in a lot of games last year where they needed Joe Burrow to they, – they practically needed Joe Burrow to throw 60 touchdown passes if they were going to win a national championship because it they only beat Texas by a touchdown. They barely beat Florida. They – beat Auburn by a field goal, and then obviously Alabama is going to be a tough game every single every outing. So they needed him to throw the this at, throw touchdowns at this rate, or they weren't going to win football games. And I don't I don't know if you know Ohio State will need that from Justin. Now, rewatching LSU Alabama, it's like LSU jumped out was way ahead. Alabama mm-hmm. came back, and it was like, man, if LSU like doesn't convert like three huge plays in the final eight minutes, Alabama would have won. LSU was against the wall. Um, in that game, and they made play after play in critical situation. Um, so, yeah, I, it, that, that is a really good point of sometimes you're as good as you're forced to be, and LSU was forced to be, like, the best offense in college football history last year because of the teams they played, and maybe Ohio State won't be pushed quite that way. All right, last quick break here on Buckeye Talk. We're going to do it. We're going to get to the fast food. It's going to be our final fast food breakdown. We've done the bracket before. Um, we're going to finish the bracket. 
after this, and we're also going to make sure we give credit to our tech subscribers who helped us uh, shape this Ohio State LSU podcast. Again, if you want to be a tech subscriber and get involved in, in, in making this podcast, you're like the producers for our podcast, and you want to get um, some recruiting information and our, our analysis of Ohio State in the national college football picture, come join us, 614-350-3315. We'll be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, recruiting news on Buckeye Talk happened over the weekend. Um, we're going to do the fast food finish of the fast food bracket next. We're in the sweet 16 of that. We've done that on two earlier podcasts. If you want to go search through our, our subscription feed, wherever you listen to podcasts, we have it in the headline. Make sure you're subscribed to Buckeye Talk five days a week. We're going now. We've been doing it for a couple months. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, 45 minutes or so, the big two hours plus every Wednesday. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. And try the text where we have upped our recruiting coverage. Uh, we got Cam Fields as a guy who's helping us with uh, calling kids and doing some recruiting stuff. Uh, Tim Bielek helping us keep an eye on recruiting. And, of course, Stephen Means uh, leading the recruiting charge. Stephen, who'd the Buckeyes add? Yeah, Denzel Burke, an athlete out of Arizona, Saguaro High School, which is actually where Clemson held their first practice back when we were covering the Fiesta Bowl. So Nathan and I have been out there. He's going to be in the defensive back room, another guy to add to that room. His commitment actually pushed Ohio State over a 300-point threshold, first time since 2018. Ohio State has reached that mark. Obviously, the number one recruiting class in the country with 19 guys committed now, 95.334 average star rating. But, yeah, another top 200 guy for Ohio State. This is a top 200 guy who's, you know, at the bottom of Ohio State's recruiting class just because of how well they've been doing. But another guy there adding to that defensive back room, We'll play in the secondary. Who'd they beat for him? Who else is he thinking about? Arizona, Arizona State, Auburn, Colorado. We know the West Coast recruiting has been going. Well, nobody in the West Coast is recruiting very, very well right now. So teams like Ohio State are going in and plucking guys. Mm-hmm. Is this it, Nathan? Is this it for the defensive back room? I know people have kind of been wondering about Tony Grimes, um, super highly rated cornerback. But, but Ohio State keeps adding, adding, adding. Um, to this secondary group, and it, and at some point they're going to be out of spots, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just even how many spots they're going to have in the cornerback. They're going to have lots of cornerbacks. It's just you're starting to get up towards the last few spots in the class period, right? Um, and they still don't have a commitment. Well, they have one commitment from a tight end. I think they want another one. There's some other positions where I think they need a commitment. It's it's getting tough to fit another cornerback in there. Would they maybe do it if someone as talented as Grimes were adamant that Ohio State is where he wanted to come? Maybe they could make that happen, but maybe this was also a signal that that isn't going to happen, and that's why you go get someone like Burke, um, who's obviously very talented in his his own right. I mean, again, this comes back to where we were talking about before, about how they're getting a top – 200 kind of talent and then you look at compared to the whatever they brought in this class you're just kind of like oh yeah another guy um whereas with a lot of programs this would be a, a headline deal to get a player this good steven was this any surprise or had he been on was was burke a guy that had been on the radar he'd been on the radar a crystal ball predictions and every single one was for ohio state i don't think anybody was surprised that he picked ohio state and to nathan's point i think denzel burke is kind of it for the defensive back room is, you know, Tony Grimes is, seems to be trending elsewhere, North Carolina and Georgia, or his crystal balls have him going. I, but to that point, I think if they do, if he decides Ohio State, then that he would be the only viable option of 
even thinking about adding another defensive back to the room. But no, there's no surprise that Denzel Burks is like a. All right, recruiting is important. Fast food is also important. So we've been doing this again. If you want to get in on the on the more the increased recruiting coverage, it's on the text. It's another reason to try the text. No fast food coverage on the text. And, you know, some people like this stuff. Some people don't like it. We've always, it's always been this way on Buckeye Talk. Some people really love when we dive into weird stuff. Some people say, just give me the football. So we're just putting it here at the end. This is a bracket, again, that we've referenced this many times that um, Barstool did in March. And they made a bracket of uh, fast casual and fast food restaurants. We have been going through that bracket. And we are in the Sweet 16. The three of us vote. That means one of the... Restaurants gets at least two votes and they advance. Um, like a good bracket. It's like a good, healthy bracket. I'll just tell you the seeds as we do the Sweet 16. It's a one versus five, a two versus three, a one versus four, a three versus a Cinderella 15, a four versus a nine, a two versus a three, a one versus a four, and a six versus a 10. I feel like that is like a perfect, like actual NCAA Sweet 16. There's two double figure seeds in there uh there's three one seeds still around um a bunch of twos and threes but it's not all chalk i like how the bracket has worked out so far so let's finish this baby off one seed mcdonald's versus five seed panda express nathan baird man uh mcdonald's steven surprise surprise McDonald's is going to win this one, but I'm going to Panda Express because I don't like McDonald's. I'm going to say it's like I feel like Panda Express is this far just because of they're kind of the choice in the right in the Asian food area for fast casual. But I don't think they're great. You know, like I think they're fine. Um, I appreciate having that option. There's one a mile from my house. I go there too often. The food's not ready. Um, I don't like waiting in the line. It's like if I wanted real Chinese food, I'd go to a Chinese restaurant. So um, I want fast food. I want fast. So McDonald's is just still like the OG on this. And so I don't know how far McDonald's is going, but they're at least advancing one more round. They are taking down Panda Express. Two versus three, two Chipotle, three Arby's, Steven. Chipotle, only because it's a lot more food for a lot less money. They do fill you up on the rice, baby. Um, Nathan. Arby's. Wow. I get to be the deciding vote on the first two. So to me, the difference, like Chipotle and, and Panda, both kind of are like the primary option in their little silo of the fast casual experience or fast food experience. Chipotle does Mexican better than Panda does Asian food. So I'm going to vote for Chipotle. I appreciate you being, you know, a little different than burgers and fries, but Chipotle just pulls it off much better, I think. I think it's a higher quality product, so I am going to vote Chipotle. So that Elite Eight regional final is going to be the one-seed McDonald's versus the two-seed Chipotle. Um, next region, Chick-fil-A, the one. Culver's, the four. Steven. Chick-fil-A has to continue to make it for me. The fries are great. The chicken is good. I've only had Culver's once, and it was great, but it was scarred by the experience that came with it. You already mentioned that. You already <laughs> mentioned my poor driving. 
the lane change without looking. <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, I just think Chick-fil-A was better. <laughs> oh, it's Culver's. It's Culver's. Wham. <laughs> Nathan, I think we we've we've come to understand your take your take on Chick Fil A through this bracket process. So, what's your vote here? Yeah, I, I'm voting Culver's. You know, uh, I think Chick Fil A is a one trick pony, and I think that pony is good, but it's not affirmed or Secretariat or a triple crown winner. It's just a it's just good. Uh Chick Fil A. Chick-fil-A advances. Subway, the three seed versus the Cinderella Sparrow, the 15 seed. Nathan, Subway versus Sparrow. I'm going to take Sparrow. I know that Subway is reliable. I know it's ubiquitous, but I also feel like they just don't try very hard. I, I can get a much better sandwich at so many other places for the same or less price. So I'm going Sparrow. I agree with that. Sparrow, Sparrow wins for me as well. I think – Subway is good, but I think Subway is also kind of living off the name Subway and the idea of a $5 footlong, even though we all know it's not really $5. That's true. That is a little bit of a bait and switch there. Um, I'm going to – I want to make sure we shout out that there is an appreciation level for food in a gas station. So I can't count the number of times that my family on a long drive for vacation in the middle of nowhere – has gotten Subway in a gas station because sometimes it's like you're in an area where they don't even have a McDonald's. Like it's easy to have a Subway because you don't need a deep fryer and you don't need, you need like a microwave and like that little oven to toast your bun. But um, so I acknowledge a part of, I think our voting on this is you it's, it's how well you do what you do. Understanding that what Subway is trying to do is different than what Chipotle is trying to do because Chipotle isn't in a gas station. You know, I mean, it's not five-star dining if it's in a gas station. So shout out to Subway, but I completely agree with both of you. Sparrow making a run, baby. Standing tall for the fast food pizza world. We're going to an original final, Chick-fil-A the one, Sparrow the 15. How far can Sparrow go? All right, moving on. Zaxby's the nine after upsetting number one uh, five guys. Zaxby's the nine, Pizza Hut the four. Steven. Pizza Hut is, is uh, I have to go with Pizza Hut here. Quality pizza. Uh, the cinnamon sticks are great. They've added the Cinnabons to their menu, which are great as well. Um, I still miss the, the cinnamon restaurants, but yeah, P- Pizza Hut. Nathan. Yeah, as, as I've said before, I would take the smell of a Pizza Hut just nostalgically over the taste of most restaurants on this bracket. I'm taking Pizza Hut. Wow. I thought I was going to have a choice there because I'm going to go Zaxby's actually. Um, Again, I think what Zaxby's does, it does well. It does the chicken tenders well. They have a a greater variety than Cane's does. Cane's is just – you get your tenders and your fries, and and that's it. Zaxby's, you can get sauces on the tenders. You can get a salad. Um, They have some more appetizer kind of options. I think Zaxby's is really good. I also really like Pizza Hut. but. you know, I mean, I, I would be curious. They're not – I don't think we're going to get to a point where they're going to match up because they wouldn't meet until the final. Would you guys pick Sparrow or Pizza Hut if it was between Sparrow and Pizza Hut? Hut. 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 Yeah, Pizza okay. Hut. Okay. I do like the breadsticks at Pizza Hut, but I think I think the Sparrow pizza 
probably is better. But again, Pizza Hut, the array of options. Stephen, you bring the cinnamon sticks up. You know, thin crust, hand tossed, pan pizza. It is more than they do have options within the pizza realm. So I appreciate the vote for the Hut, but I'm a little sad Zaxby's is out. Two seed in and out. Three seed Popeyes. Nathan. In and out. Steven. Popeyes outside. Take take away the sandwich. Everything else though. Popeyes. I do. I was open to Popeyes, right? I was open, but then I do. I did feel like the whole the whole spicy chicken sandwich thing turned me off a little bit. Um, it, it, I got confused by what was happening. It was a long time when you couldn't get it. Is it really just a? Um, in and out's my place. So it's like, I mean, everybody has like their favorite burger place. And are you an in and out guy or a Five Guys guy? Clearly, we're more in and out guys because Five Guys is already out. Um, Five Guys got eliminated by a restaurant that then lost to Pizza Hut. So it's not, so Five Guys just was not doing it. Steven, you are a Five Guys person though, right? Um, you um, just got outvoted by two guys who prefer in and out to Five Guys. Um, so I, I like Popeyes. I like the Cajun tenders, but. I probably would pick Cane's and Zaxby's over Popeye's. I don't eat a lot of the straight-up chicken. I usually get tenders or, like, little pieces. I don't get chicken with bones in it most of the time when adds I get flavor. chicken. Do you get the bones, Stephen? I get bones. It adds flavor to your chicken. The marrow. You suck the marrow out of the bones. Yeah. Um, it's just easier. I like – I'm a guy who likes convenience, if people who are listening to this podcast have been – past five years probably realize that by now i would like i would prefer someone to murder the chicken remove its bones and then squish its meat into like a long stick and bread it um i'm down with that so um because i'm not as into the chicken and i'm more into the tenders i think tenders are you know good a lot of places i'm gonna go in and out with uh acknowledging my respect for popeye's Last region, one seed, Wendy's, four seed, Steak and Shake. Steven. Mm. I think I'm going to go Steak and Shake. They have baked beans. Wendy's doesn't have baked beans. Nathan. I'm, I'm going Wendy's. Um, you know, the, the fact that they offer a pretty strong chili to kind of cancel out Steak and Shake's own chili um, and just the convenience and the uh, the speed of a Wendy's, I give it over steak. That's a big problem with steak and shake. The food is great, and it's cooked to order, and on, on certain occasions, that's great. If you ever try to go through a steak and shake drive through it adds like 20 minutes to your night, and sometimes you don't have it. I, I agree with – I think that's a very good point. I'm not even uh, – some of this I even question whether the, the, some of the restaurants like that should – they have waiters there. They have servers. You know, right. it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not fast casual. Yes, they have a drive through I guess. Maybe that's the distinction. But if you go in, you've got to sit down and wait. Um, I want to go up to a counter when I'm talking about stuff like this. So um, I think that is an important distinction, and I think Wendy's does what it does in the burger realm. Um, the variety of Wendy's, the fresh beef, it's located in Columbus, headquartered in Columbus. Um, I just think they do that, that area. The most popular area of fast food and fast casual is burgers and fries, and I think Wendy's does it better than anybody. Plus, they have chicken sandwiches and chili and baked potatoes. So I'm going Wendy's Wendy's advances. Six-seed Canes, 10-seed Qdoba. Nathan. I'm voting Canes, um, but I will say this. Uh, it's, something, it's, it's something you just pointed out, and it's made me rethink Canes a little bit. 
about how they have a very limited menu. We just had Cane's the other night. We got it um, Sunday night, Saturday night, Saturday night. First time we've had fast food during the shutdown. And um, it strikes me that if you're going to have that limited of a menu, I think you could try harder on the fries. Their fries to me are like very frozen fries. Like I could just make it home. I wish they would have something a little bit more from their sides um, than just what they have. But having said that, what they do with that limited menu is great. And I'm voting Canes. Steven. I'm going with Canes. But you know what? The more we get into this bracket, the more I'm realizing Canes has a pretty solid road to get to a Final Four here. Just because they keep getting matchups where, to the point that both of you have made, they're, they have a very basic menu. And it's not you know the greatest menu in the world, but it's good enough to where if it's somebody like Cordoba is who they're going up against, you're going to pick them. Yeah, they uh, they beat Del Taco in the first round, KFC in the second round, and Qdoba in the Sweet 16. That has been a kind of easy path that for the six Canes. Um, yeah, Canes moving they're, on. They're Clemson, and they're playing in the ACC. Yeah, Canes is Clemson. I like it. Um, all right, we're in the Elite Eight. One seed McDonald's versus two seed Chipotle. One seed Chick-fil-A versus 15 seed Sparrow. Four seed Pizza Hut versus two seed In-N-Out. And one seed Wendy's versus six seed Canes. Again, I feel like it's a very realistic bracket. We got a 1-2, a 1-15, a 2-4, and a 1-6. Nathan, McDonald's, Chipotle. I'm voting McDonald's because of something you said earlier about how you think Chipotle does Mexican food better than whoever it was they were up against does something else um, or somebody you were making a comparison, I guess, between whoever McDonald's was up against earlier. And I guess my answer to that was Chipotle really actually isn't Mexican food. At the end of the day, I would rather go just get carry out from a taqueria or a Mexican place um, for the same or less price. I feel like Chipotle just, it's a burrito and somebody like shouts the word Mexico at it, but it's not, there's, there's no authenticity to it. It's fine. But I'm going to take the convenience and the um, affordability of McDonald's over Chipotle. There's salsa on it. If it's if there's salsa on it, it's Mexican food, right? Isn't yeah. that the is that our American distinction of whether it's Mexican food or not? It may I be yours. Know. Tis not you can mine. Get guac. There's salsa. I don't know. Salsa. I put salsa on my eggs. I guess I don't have Mexican eggs. Uh, Steven, McDonald's good. or Chipotle? Chipotle. I re- I am never picking McDonald's in this bracket. Yeah, so I get to decide. I I eat a lot of both, um, but I'm going to go Chipotle. Uh, no disrespect to McDonald's, but again, I think Chipotle is the best in its realm, and I don't think McDonald's is the best in its realm. So that's why I'm going to go Chipotle. Chipotle is a two seed onto the final four. One seed Chick Fil A, fifteen seed Sparrow. Nathan, talk about how you hate Chick Fil A. Uh, yeah, again, it's not necessarily hate. I just feel like it's it's uh, overhyped. Um, I feel like maybe the, the resume doesn't work the one seed. Um, one of those one of those teams that like again, like we're talking about with Clemson, you roll through a weak conference. Um, I'm gonna take Sparrow. Steven. Chick fil A. I think Sparrow's had a great run here getting this far, but it's time for the you know the big boys to take over and get into the final four here, and that's Chick fil A. Yes, Sparrow, the George Mason, or I don't know whoever else, uh, <clears throat> UMBC or somebody of the, of the bracket. Um, congratulations to Sparrow, but it ends here, Chick-fil-A. The one seed, um, 
I think I think they're they would move on like this for a lot of people. It's interesting to have Nathan sort of anti. You're about as anti Chick Fil A as anybody I've I've ever met, Nathan. Like, and you realize that, right? That Chick Fil A. I think there are people who will argue against Chipotle. That is, Chipotle is very popular. You'll find people who argue against it. You'll find people who argue against Wendy's or McDonald's or whatever. I, I, I don't know that I've run into very many people who who don't think Chick Fil A is like at least like pretty good. Well, now again, again though, it, let's let's look back at the bracket because I think I legitimately like every restaurant Chick Fil A's been up against better than Chick Fil A. There's plenty of other restaurants on this uh, list that I don't like that much, or that I've never even been to or heard of, and I probably would have voted Chick Fil A over those restaurants. But in this case, I, I like Penn Station better. I like Moe's better. I like Culver's better. I would rather go to any of those restaurants than Chick Fil A. And and I would say that is unusual. Do you feel like you are surrounded by other Chick-fil-A haters or, or, or do people sometimes raise their eyebrow when you say I'd rather go to Moe's? I mean, I feel like this is just like one area where my tastes might surpass those of my peers. Okay, so we're going to do that. <laughs> so we're not going to go different. We're going to go surpass. What? Okay. There's no accounting for taste. There's no accounting yeah. for taste, as they say. Um, they're not open on Sunday. Uh, all right, Chick Fil A advances. Two seed In and Out, four seed Pizza Hut, regional final. Steven. the Hut, the Hut's got to move on here. In and Out is is good, but it's overrated. There's nothing overrated about Pizza Hut. All right, I'm gonna go. I love In and Out. I also love the Hut, but I'm gonna go In and Out because they're my top of the you know whatever elite fast food burger list. In and Out is my place. And Nathan, I wanted to go because I wanted to put it on you because I feel like through this, you have been rather, you've been quite pro both these restaurants, correct? Don't you like both of these quite a bit? So you have a, a contrast here between Pizza Hut, which is like, there may be no restaurant that I have a more like baked into my bones, nostalgic connection to like growing up, going to Pizza Hut with my family, as opposed to In-N-Out, which was like this. It was. It might as well have been on Neptune. Like I grew up in Illinois and lived in Indiana, and it was very far into my life. I was well into my 30s before I went to an In and Out because they're only on the West Coast. And the one that was in Las Vegas, even though I went to Vegas several times, it was off the Strip. We weren't going to make a special trip just to go to In and Out. So um, it finally worked out that we went to the one off Strip, and then now there's one on the Strip that we go to every time we go to Vegas. So it's like the the fresh new thing for me versus the nostalgic. Um, like part of my it's in my blood and in this case i'm leaning blood i'm going pizza hut wow down goes in and out that surprised me lean nostalgia i like the i think i mentioned before i think i love the sauce i would drink the cup of marinara sauce that you get with the breadsticks i would drink it it's so good would you guys drink that sauce i wouldn't do that no that's a bit too much You're I, I don't know if I need to drink it, but I, I enjoy it as well, too. I also love that you have the buffet option, even though it's some it's kind of a compromised version of Pizza Hut in some ways. It's still if you if you're really hungry or just uh, really sad, you can go to the Pizza Hut buffet and like kill either of those things or feed them both. However you want to look at it. We might be seeing the dad. I mean, a lot of buffets are going down in the yeah, era. That's, of that's very true. Now, that's I, very I, true. I will be curious if the and the Pizza Hut buffet, it felt like I at least my local Pizza Hut had stopped it. 
the 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 second closest one to me still had it, but the closest one did away with it, and I it felt like maybe it was like there weren't as many as there used to be. I wonder if this is the death of the buffet. Um, Pizza Hut, the four seed, advances to the final four, where it will face the winner of Wendy's and Canes. Wendy's the one, Canes the six. Steven. I'm gonna go Canes by I think a buzzer beater win. Win here at Wendy's is, is is decent food. I like the the frosties, but uh, even with Canes being a very simple menu, it's still it's really good at what it does. Nathan, Wendy's would be my pick to win this whole thing, um, and I'm picking them to win this matchup. I think Wendy's is a, is a quite a nice mix of quality and variety, and then I think Canes what they do they do really well, but I think a Wendy's burger is good. Steven, you mentioned the frosty. I mean, I would, what if you could, you can't get a milkshake at Cane's? You can't get any kind of like dessert yeah. little thing. Um, I like the salads at Wendy's. I, I really appreciate having a salad option where I can get your unhealthy chicken on lettuce. I appreciate that quite a bit. I really, 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 really wish Cane's would go that way. You can get it. You can get it at Zaxby's. Um, you can get it at Wendy's. I just wish they had that option so I don't have to eat the fries. So, um, Shout out to Canes, but Wendy's advances. So we wind up with two one seeds, Chick-fil-A and Wendy's, a two seed in Chipotle, and a four seed in the hut. Advancing I feel like that's the most controversial four. pick on this list, right? Like the well, textures, that's probably what they're going to give us the most grief for, right, it's, is Pizza it's Hut. hut the hut is dangerous because we have Nathan Baird nostalgia and sort of like Stephen Means pickiness battling here, and they coalesce around the hut, around like cheese pizza from Pizza Hut. Right, Nathan. When or Stephen, when you get Pizza Hut food, what do you get? Cheese? Yeah, I get cheese, but I get stuffed crust. Okay. So uh, there, there are. Wait, two- you eat the crust? Stuffed crust. Stuffed crust. Don't leave out that very important word when we're having this discussion. So it's interesting that you guys both are passionate for the hut for different reasons, which is a shout out to Pizza Hut to be able to. I just find it, it's interesting that you won't eat like a golden, crispy, like perfectly baked gourmet crust, but you will eat the same crust if we run like some stringy, uh, sinewy cheese of some low-grade cheese through it and give it to you in that form. That's like saying it's crazy that someone won't just eat a slice of bread, but if you make a grilled cheese, they'll eat it. A hundred percent different. It's the same. It's, it's actually the same thing. You added cheese it's to not. bread. I think it's the there, same thing. There are, uh, I think, Nathan, your Chick-fil-A takes have become as controversial as Stephen Means' crust takes. Um, yeah. But you both realize you are swimming upstream, I think, against society on, which I think in general society Really likes Chick-fil-A and really likes crust. Um, so you guys are outliers there, which is fine. We appreciate outliers on Buckeye Talk. All right, let's do the final four. One seed Chick-fil-A, two seed Chipotle. Nathan, let's get you out of the way. This is this is this is a harder choice for me. Um, because you probably don't, you don't like either that much. Right. I don't. Yeah, I like. I still like Penn Station, Moe's, and Culver's, and. Sabaro, I think, better than either of these places. But um, I, I always lean towards where I can maybe get a more balanced real meal, so I'm going Chipotle. Steven? I think I might go Chick-fil-A here, just because if I go to Chipotle, I'm going to get a chicken burrito. 
and I think Chick-fil-A would do chicken better than Chipotle would. So I gotta go with Chick-fil-A. I actually should have gone because I knew what I was going to say, and I thought, Stephen, you were actually the, the deciding vote here because um, I'm going Chick-fil-A. Uh, nugs, man. Nugs. Nugs. There's nothing as good of a, as a nug. There's not a lot of things that I would want to eat a hundred of, and I tried to eat a hundred nugs. Um, and a nug is different than anything else because you get a better breading to meat ratio. I like more breading with my meat. Um, that's a t-shirt slogan. I like more breading with my meat. Buckeye talk. Um, so, um, I like Chipotle. I eat a lot of Chipotle, but we are, there's a Chick-fil-A that's like not in the first batch of fast food restaurants near us, but like in the third batch of fast food restaurants near us. So it's not right around the corner, but it's close enough that we can get it whenever we want it. But I, the thing about Chick-fil-A that I appreciate is it still feels special to me even if I get it a lot. And I think that is a, a rare ability to have that um, you can get the chicken on salads. Um, the spicy chicken is really good as an option. They have some grilled chicken options that my family likes. The fries are good. The They have good ice. Ice can be a tiebreaker. Chick Canes has good ice too. Um, so, um, and I, I do get Chipotle sometimes and think, I think the Chipotle experience can sometimes differ quite a bit from meal to meal every now and then i feel like i kind of got a bad batch of chipotle that like i'm biting in i get chicken as my meat almost every time and every now and then it's like ah that chicken wasn't quite as good do you guys ever feel that That sometimes there's not quite the consistency which maybe means it's a more real experience mcdonald's is the exact same every time for good and for bad but have you ever had sort of like chick or ever had chipotle meals that were kind of a little off yeah, there's nothing worse than getting the end of a of a of the container of your chicken or rice or whatever at Chipotle when before they refilled and you've got kind of that bottom amount that's just been sitting around for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. I used to have that problem a little bit with the steak there, um, but I order barbacoa there now pretty much ex- exclusively. I think that's the protein to go for. I like the – I used to get the half chicken, half chorizo when they have chorizo, but I don't think they have chorizo at the moment. So, um, All right, other final four matchup, the one seed Wendy's versus the four seed The Hut. Steven. I've got to keep going with The Hut, man. It's the only, to, to, it's the only crust I will eat because they have stuffed crust. I, Wendy's is good, but nothing is better than pizza. I do love pizza. I'm going to go – because I want to put it on Nathan. I'm going Wendy's. Um, just appreciate it across the board. So, Nathan, during this, you have expressed your uh, appreciation for Wendy's, but you also have uh, the smell, uh, as which is the smell of your childhood with the hut. So where are you going? This actually isn't that hard of a choice for me. As much as I've talked about Pizza Hut, I think the answer is Wendy's. I just feel like they do. You've got the value menu, and then also sometimes I do feel like you're paying a little bit more, but when you do, you're getting – a better quality than you are at the comparable places, the McDonald's, the Burger Kings, whatever. Um, they, they just, they're the thing. They're the fast food place. They, they have it figured out. All right. Two one seeds in our final Wendy's and Chick-fil-A. I'm not, are you guys surprised that this is where we are? Is there anything that as you know, I think we've sort of learned about each other's uh, preferences here as we've gone through this is Wendy's Chick-fil-A in any way, a surprising final or, or is it kind of chalky? 
it's clearly chalky with two one seeds. I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. <laughs> that you have been battling against Chick-fil-A yeah. all this time, and they somehow still made the final. Yeah, it's the people who, like, you know, Duke is a one seed, and they pick them to lose in the second round to some nine seed or whatever because they just hate Mike Krzyzewski without ever actually considering maybe that the, the team is actually that great and they should be in the finals. I like that. Duke, I think I think Chick-fil-A is Duke. Yeah. Some people, a lot of people like Duke, but some people really hate Duke. They're actually probably more like Kentucky. Um, well, Kentucky Fried Chicken is like Kentucky. Uh, Steven, eh, what, do you, what do you think of this matchup? I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised it's two one seeds, but to Nathan's point, I am surprised that when every single matchup, Chick-fil-A has constantly already been in a one-one one, one matchup and needing a tiebreaker, they've consistently continued to make it round after round after round. Yeah, that's true. You and I have been pretty loyal to Chick-fil-A through this, Stephen, because, like, I like Culver's. They beat Culver's. I like Sparrow. They beat Sparrow. I like Chipotle. They beat Chipotle. Chick-fil-A has had a pretty tough road. I think they've gone through some really good restaurants on the way here. Um, so we have specialization versus the wide variety. Um, let's start with Nathan because we know where he's going. Wendy's versus Chick-fil-A for it all. Nathan Baird. To be fair, I did want to say something I do really appreciate about Chick-fil-A, and that's the pouch. Like if you're eating on the road, the chicken sandwich pouch is like a great – delivery device, a way to hold that sandwich. It's better than the McDonald's wrappers or the wrappers you get other places, or certainly better than the stupid boxes that McDonald's gives you stuff in, because then now you've just got this greasy hamburger uh, juicing all over your hand. Um, but having said that, it, to me, it's not even close. It's it, Wendy's is far better. All right. That's one vote for Wendy's. Steven, Chick-fil-A or Wendy's? I have to still go with Chick-fil-A here. You know, the chicken is great. The service is outstanding. Their milkshakes are pretty solid milkshakes. They've got the natural lemonade, which is great as well. The fries are great. They're battle-tested in this bracket. I have to go Chick-fil-A all the way. I will say, I think we, we have talked about the Chick-fil-A service. Uh, everybody knows it, Stephen. I know you talked about it early on with Chick-fil-A, just how efficient they are with stuff. Um, I do really appreciate and I don't I hope this isn't like condescending but every now and then like I really appreciate people who are just like excellent at their jobs and there's a woman who was the cash who worked the cash register at a Wendy's when I lived in Northwest Indiana in the Chicago suburbs my first job uh, out of college and just the way that my wife and I our schedules worked or whatever and where the Wendy's was situated it was just a place that we would wind up there at lunch a lot during a lunch rush and we would often go in. And it's like a lot of the Wendy's, I don't know if they still have it. They had like the like the black metal railings in the line. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you been in a Wendy's with like the metal railings that tells you – it's like almost like an mm -hmm. amusement park line? Yeah. 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 So I remember being like you winding your way through the black metal railings. And this woman who worked the cash register, she was the most efficient fast food worker I've ever – I can picture her in my head right now. This was 20 years ago. Um, and she'd be like – You'd be like four – it's like there'd be a person up front, and there'd be like nine people behind the person, and there wasn't any room to move because they were still work making the food. But she would be on to the next person, and she'd be like five deep into the line getting orders so that by the time you got up to the cash register, your food had already been cooking for eight minutes. She was so good, and she made the lunch experience so much better. 
Because you know how it is. Sometimes you have a limited time for lunch, and the, the lunch rush is nuts. So shout out to Chick-fil-A service. But that Wendy's woman is factoring into my decision. And in the end, I am like Stephen. I think like – again, Nathan can claim a refined palate here. But I think Nathan does have a broader range of things he'll eat compared to me and Stephen. But most of the fast food places I go, when I go to Chipotle, I get the same thing like every time. I get a chicken burrito with lettuce and cheese and fajita vegetables and hot salsa. Like I never change it up. When I go to Chick-fil-A, I almost I get the same thing almost every time. When I go to McDonald's, I get the exact same thing every time. Wendy's is like the one fast food place where when I go, I don't know what I'm going to get because I like the chicken sandwich. I like the spicy chicken sandwich. I like the chicken nuggets, spicy nugs. I like the burgers. I like the salads. I like the chili. I like the baked potatoes. Some, every now and then I'll get a Frosty. And so that variety, the mix of quality and variety will overcome Chick-fil-A's quality and speciality. And I will go with Wendy's to give Wendy's the championship of our fast food bracket. Nathan, you have been a Wendy's supporter from the start. This is a tough, a tough loss for you, Stephen. We'll start with you. Um, you're clearly standing here in the stands in your Chick-fil-A outfit kind of like downtrodden now that Wendy's has knocked your place off. Was Chick-fil-A, if you just were picking this yourself, would Chick-fil-A have been your winner or is there somebody that got knocked out earlier that would have been your, your champion of this? No, I think Chick-fil-A would have been the winner just because, you know, it, it's quality food and quality service. And you, it, it, when the only knock is it's not open for us on a certain day, I, I can look past that because, you know, Who's, I wanted on other days other than Sunday anyway, so that's fine with me. I did feel like as I was sitting here listening to your soliloquy, though, I thought for a moment you were going inside with me, and it kind of felt like the North Carolina-Villanova National Championship game where you think, okay, yes, we're going to win this. Chick-fil-A is going to take it home, and then you come down and knock a three-point shot down to give Wendy's the win. That that woman at the cash register in Northwest Indiana in 1997 just just drained a three right in your face, Steve. Yeah, just she just drained it right in your face. Um, Nathan, you said you you called your shot early. You said Wendy's would be your champion if you were doing this bracket by yourself. Yeah, no. When I first looked at this bracket, I thought Wendy's is going to win this. And just because I feel like they just do so many things well, they 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 hit they check so many boxes for so many different people. You know, I I, I guess I don't hold it against someone that they like Chick Fil A. I do, I, I don't understand someone saying that the only thing that Chick Fil A has against them is that they aren't open on Sundays. I feel like it's that the concept that it's some kind of dining paradise. Um, that almost like maybe it shouldn't be open on Sundays. That would be like too much. We wouldn't be able to take how great Chick Fil A was if it was open seven days a week. Like. It's it's fine. It's for the Lord, man. You know, it's taking a day. I'm not even I'm not even saying they I'm not I'm not holding against them that they're not open on Sunday. I'm saying that there's there are other reasons why I don't think they're that great. I I, I and I think Wendy's like I kind of at the end of the day, what you're saying is is very true about Wendy's is that someone who of any kind of 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 tastes could go to Wendy's and find something there that they like. All right, congratulations to Wendy's. Uh, we'll tweet at Wendy's. Also, they have a funny social media account, so we will tweet at oh, Wendy's. Oh, they have a great social media account. We should. Wendy's headquarters again is in Columbus, and every now and then, when I get tired of sports writing, I look around at jobs, and I have, I have looked at the Wendy's career website at times <laughs> and thought about seeing if I could go into 
Wendy's social media as my next career step. I'd just be like, I'll just tweet like I'm a hamburger. Um, but they're so good at it, they wouldn't hire me anyway. So congratulations to Wendy's. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. We're going to get into some more. Oh, shoot. I didn't, I didn't mention these before, and I'm going to grab them right now. I want to get into some more question-heavy podcasts uh, in the next couple days. Are you guys cool with that? Because we didn't use as many questions today. Does that make sense to you? 100%. Yeah. All right. So I want to give a shout-out to the people who did ask us about LSU because you helped drive us towards this podcast. It was from the 239 how about a story on our offense being the LSU of last year? Fields always finds at least one option of an extremely skilled athlete in space that has a third or fourth worst defensive back getting exposed and we can't be stopped. Joe Burrow style. Um, Joe Burrow style on Fields winning the Heisman next year. So that was uh, a request for an Ohio State LSU comparison that we listened to um, from the 773. Um Optimistic, given a fully loaded offense, eerily similar to LSU's last year. Great quarterback in second year. Offensive line capable of winning the Joe Moore Award. Wide receiver capable of winning the Boletnikoff, Chris Olave, as uh, Chase, uh, Jamar Chase did last year. Potential Thad Moss tight end in record. The pieces are there for the offense to excel with known quantity at running back. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was hurt in the playoff, and LSU still succeeded. Is it likely a Clyde Edwards-Hilaire type back is there? No, but maybe. So that was another comparison that we appreciated um, from the 570. I'm not projecting, this is Luke from Denver who pushed us this way. I'm not projecting Ohio State to be as prolific as LSU's historic offense this past year, by the way. Although uh, the LSU total offensive TDs, they had 92. Um, Ohio State had 80. So he's not predicting that, but he he sent multiple uh, texts about it. Um, he sent a long one. I'm really getting excited for the offense. I know there are concerns with the running game. But I would just like to submit that I think Ryan Day is smarter and better at coaching than Joe Brady. Than Joe Brady, um, if the offense is dynamic enough uh, uh, and poses a threat on multiple levels, and uh, the coordinator is elite at strategizing, um, then the rushing yards will come. So that was when we were having a, a discussion about the running back. So those were the three people we really. I sometimes when you send these texts, I've had that in a folder for a month, and I've been saving it since March, and I saved it for this. So shout out to those three people who sent those texts. We certainly appreciate your patronage. We appreciate all you guys listening to Buckeye Talk. Lots of questions coming on the Thursday and Friday pod. Try the text 614-350-3315. Read cleveland.com slash OSU. Drop reviews on Apple Podcasts for now. For Nathan and Steven, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.